Good morning and welcome to another episode of your favorite weekend analysis program, The Big Issue. My name is Godfred Akutu-Buafo. I am your regular host. It's a pleasure to come your way and I hope you are having a good uh, weekend as always. Two things occupy my attention this morning and that is what we'll be discussing. Of course, uh, the first one on the agenda will be uh, the much-touted uh, address on the economy that was uh, given by the Vice President Dr. Mahmoudou Baumia on a Tescom platform uh, on Thursday. Uh, he sought to give a clear understanding of what the country's economic problems were and what the government was doing. Uh, and this had come on the back of several calls for him to speak based on uh, the fact that he had been touted as the man who was leading the economy. And for a while now, uh, his silence was poignant on the matter. And so uh, he chose a platform to speak on. He said several things. Uh, we will try today to break down some of the points that he made uh, in his two-hour uh, address to Tescon members and also perhaps find out, was he really speaking to us or was he speaking to Tescon members? Uh, those are some of the things we'll try and discover whilst breaking down some of the reality uh, of what he spoke about. And then we'll also go to Parliament, which has been very busy these days uh, with court hearings and the big one this week being three MPs referred to the Privileges Committee by the Speaker of Absenteeism. And, well, quite frankly, disagreements on that coming from the minority side uh, of the House. We'll try and also go into a bit of detail on that. So all this and more coming up on the big issue until midday. Welcome back to The Big Issue. And as always, as you know, it's a very, very interactive program. So for those of you who wish to join us, I want to hear your thoughts on uh, what you expected and what you heard uh, from Dr. Mahmoud Bamiya, the Vice President, on Thursday as he spoke about the economy, tried to make sense of the economy for you. Um, did you leave with a clear understanding? Because he did indicate that by the time he was done, uh, his objective was to give people a clearer understanding of the state of the economy and then explain uh, what the government was doing about the economy. So you can do that via uh, WhatsApp lines. I have two of them, 0549 986 996 and 0550 5858 You can also reach us via our Twitter handles at City973 Hashtag the big issue. You can also reach me on my own Twitter handle at East Sportsman. Just type in Godfrey Akutobuafu at East Sportsman. You can use the same hashtag, the big issue, and I'll gladly read your comments, questions, uh, queries, anything you might have. Also on Facebook uh, at City973. City973, basically, yes. And then CityTVGH. Those are our Facebook pages. So you can go there, share the stream. Uh, you can leave your comments as well. And if you do miss out, don't worry. Just go to our YouTube channel. CityTube, C-I-T-I-T-U-B-E, CityTube, most importantly, subscribe, very important. Uh, and then you can catch playback of the big issue on CityTube as well. So you do not miss out on anything. Okay, so let's come back in then and uh, begin the conversation. I will be doing this with a myriad of guests, uh, very different panels. We'll have uh, starters, we'll have substitutions, we'll do quite a bit. But um, what I do promise is that the topics will be 
uh, addressed properly. So the Vice President on Thursday delivered a two-hour-long lecture on the current state of the economy. During the lecture, he acknowledged the current economic hardship but assured that the Kufuado administration taking bold steps to get the economy back on track. Now, notwithstanding the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, he posited that the agri sector was growing at a double rate, industrial sector was growing. So basically, he painted a very bright picture. He also indicated that the government has either reduced or abolished 18 taxes and levies. Uh, he did not talk too much on the e-levy, though, but I'll leave that to you to listen to. So we'll hear excerpts of his lecture, and then we come in studio, and I will go and speak to the information minister after that, uh, Kujo Pongkroma, in his capacity as information minister, and also as part of the economic management team uh, of the government. That is where I'll begin the conversation from. So we'll hear in excerpts of Dr. Balmier's lecture, speak to Kujo Pongkroma, and we'll take it from there. The speech was necessitated by concerns over what many described as the silence of Dr. Mahmoud Baumia in times of economic hardships, with prices of goods and services recording daily increments, fuel prices hitting an all-time high, transportation costs out the roof in a depreciating city. Critics questioned why Dr. Baumia, who is the leader of the economic management team, and a champion of symposiums and the SWAL NDC government on economic challenges was mute. The vice president, in his address, sought to answer questions ranging from what has happened to the economic fundamentals to how the government is solving the current economic challenges. He, however, acknowledged the numerous challenges facing the economy. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic changed the economic circumstances of virtually every country in the world. Today, our economy is witnessing rising prices of fuel and virtually all commodities like bread, rice, sugar, sachet water, cement, iron rods, and so on. From Malata market through Abofor market to Techiman market to Takradi market circle to Pando and almost everywhere across the country, prices are on the rise. Government communications have not spared any opportunity to attribute the worsening inflation rate, depreciation of the city, and rising cost of living to challenges posed by the COVID 19 pandemic and recently by the ongoing tensions between Russia and Ukraine. In a similar fashion, Dr. Baumia aligned how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the country's growth and how Ghana is directly affected by the Ukraine-Russia war. The data shows that the debt-to-GDP ratio after COVID increased in the US, the UK, Cote d'Ivoire, by 12, 18, and 12.3 percentage points of GDP, respectively. The table shows that Ghana's total debt stock has increased from 122 billion in 2016 to 351 billion in 2022, an increase of 229, 229.6 billion. At the end of 2021, external debt amounted to 170 billion, 38.7% of GDP, and domestic debt totaled 181 billion, 41.4% of GDP. 
Between 2019 and 2021, Ghana's debt to GDP increased by 17.6 percentage points of GDP. It should be noted, and it is important, that without the 50.1 billion for the exceptional items of the financial sector, the energy, and COVID, Ghana's debt to GDP would have been about 68% instead of the current 80% that it is. Critics, especially those within the National Democratic Congress, have consistently debunked attempts by the ruling party to blame external factors for the current situation. They have argued that COVID-19 alone could not be a contributor to the debt situation. In an interesting twist, the vice president agreed to the claims that COVID-19 cannot be solely blamed. He, however, added charges on extra capacity of power produced and the cost of financial sector cleanup as causes of the debt situation. In addition to COVID-19, there were two major items of expenditure. In addition to COVID-19, there were two major items of expenditure that are critical to understanding the evolution of the fiscal deficit and the debt stock, the banking sector cleanup and the energy sector excess capacity payments. VNDs in Parliament have been on a campaign to ensure the government account for the expenses made in the COVID-19 management. But Dr. Baumia believes all expenses made during the COVID-19 period were necessary, despite their impact on the debt stock. Ghana has been acknowledged globally for doing an excellent job in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have the strong leadership of His Excellency the President, Nana Adodankwa Akufuado, to thank for that. Deaths from COVID so far have totaled 1,445, and the total case count as at yesterday, the total cases in Ghana was 42 cases. So we have managed the COVID very well. In recent times, the government has had calls to reduce expenditure by 3.5 billion cities to help manage the country's fiscal space. Some analysts have argued that government projects such as Free Senior High School, RADA, should see expenditure cuts, but the vice president disagrees. So to put this expenditure of 50.1 billion, an interest cost of 8.5 billion, in perspective, it is important to juxtapose this expenditure against the total expenditure or releases on some of our key flagship pro projects, including free SHS, one district, one factory, planting for food and jobs, the development authorities, the Ghana Card, Zongo Development Fund, NAPCO, teacher training allowances, and nursing training allowances. The data shows that over five years, over the last five years, our expenditure on all of these flagship projects was 15.6 billion Ghana seeds. 
over five years. And this is compared to our expenditure on those three exceptional items I've just mentioned of 50.1 billion Ghana cities. The expenditure, in fact, on these three items amounted to more than three times the expenditure on the flagship programs in... So that was the Vice President. Uh, you're hearing excerpts of his uh, lecture to TESCON members as the youth of the New Patriotic Party uh, at a party forum on Thursday. Uh, I think that was somewhere uh, getting to Kaswa. You know, so just to get clarity on a couple of issues, I'll be doing this interview with uh, two different persons on this side. So I'll first speak to Kojopong Kroma, who's the information minister, and then later Dr. Dixon Adumakukis, who's the member of parliament for Anyasu Utuomu, also. Uh, join us. Doc, good morning. morning. It's been a while. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well. How's your constituency? Um, we were under the rains yesterday. Yeah, you guys are victims all the time. And uh, it wasn't easy, but I think we're, we're, we're staying the course and pushing hard to desilt most of our drainage. Mm -hmm. So I, I, yeah. I, I hope your MC is helping in that endeavor. Yes, he's, he's uh, on the grounds and uh, also working hard. And uh, he, he knows our problems. Okay. In fact, he's one municipal chief I don't really have to even inform. He knows our problems. He's, uh, as it is, a very local man. Okay. Um, so he's also working hard. Mm. All right. And thank you for joining us uh, on a Saturday. Uh, we'll also be joined by Hassan Suhini, Member of Parliament for Tamale North. Uh, Dr. Kobi Mensah, he's a political marketing analyst. Uh, Dr. Patrick Assuming is an economist. Franklin Kujo, as always, president of Imani Africa, will also join us on this part of the conversation. Uh, but let me begin uh, with Kujo Pongkrum and the information minister. Kujo, good morning. Kujo, good morning. Kujo, please, if you can unmute your microphone. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Godfrey. How are you? I am well. Thank you for joining us on a weekend. I know you treasure your weekends, considering how busy you are, and particularly how busy this week has been. Um, thank you for finding time for us this morning on the big issue. And I guess I, I will start the conversation from the choice of platform that you know the vice president chose, a TESCOM platform. There are those who have said the conversation post that has been, who was he speaking to? Was he speaking to Ghana? Was he speaking to party members. Your thoughts on those? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear the last part of your question well, but I think uh, you're asking about the choice of platform. Yes, Let me exactly. say good morning to Dr. D and to uh, your uh, viewers. Actually, uh, the reason for which I'm not with you in studio is that I'm just a bit under the weather. Um, and that's why I'm not able to um, join you in the studio uh, proper. But um, in, in, in Kodongo presidential platforms so you may attend a particular event elsewhere to uh, to to commission organization and it's a pressing conversation in the country and you may use that platform to pivot and speak to that so i really don't i think we'll try we'll, we'll, we'll have to try and find a better connection. Your network is a bit problematic. So uh, we'll work on getting the information minister back 
so that he can address um, some of those questions. But just to highlight um, some of the things that the president, uh, the vice president, uh, spoke about. Uh, for those of you, you know, who didn't um, listen, it was a 129-page uh, presentation and uh, basically addressed depreciation, uh, looked to address questions of what happened to the economic fundamentals, uh, why are prices of goods and services increasing so fast, why has the city depreciated so fast this year, where is the new economy you promised to build, how the government has tackled corruption, and then he spoke about the economic fundamentals, and that was important because it's one of the uh, sticks that uh, he's normally beaten with on... Okay, so I think I have uh, Kujo upon back. So Kujo, thank you very much again for staying with us. Um, I think you had the first question, so if you can go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, no, I started off by saying that in presidential conversations, um, you have what we like to describe as a pivoting platform. You may be invited to maybe even commission a plant or to um, uh, inaugurate a body, and there's a major national conversation at the time, and you may use your event as a platform on which you pivot from the core subject to speak to the national issue. It's done several times. You may find your president going to a speech on Prize given day, and while at that, pivoting to speak about a certain major conversation that is going on in the country. So that in itself is not uh, strange. I do understand that this is a, a TESCON national conference. Um, the Excellency Vice President was invited as a guest speaker. Of course, one of the major conversations that's been going on in the country is about the economy and our recovery program. And it would have been strange if he had not um, you know, spent time speaking about it, especially knowing how he has been very vocal on the economy for the last about eight years or so. So I think um, the bigger deal is in the substantive presentation and whether or not it answers the questions on the minds of many Ghanaians. The other observation that has come out of this was again the framing of us versus them and again that's why i asked my first question on who was he speaking to because there are those who have observed that he spent a significant amount of time doing the npp versus the ndc in trying to establish the state of the economy rather than just dealing with the problems the economy is facing my analysis of the, the entire script and the entire delivery is that it focused on about four major things. You're right, there was an adverse them part of it, and I'll come to that one. But um, one of the first things you notice in the presentation of the script is a reiteration of the fact that Ghana is in difficult times, as are many other countries globally and that those difficult times are caused by a number of factors. And it took a sense to outline all of those factors. Now that is critical, especially if you add it to the second matter I'm going to speak about, which is the second part of his presentation. And the second part of his presentation deals clearly with the fact that we have a clear homegrown solution or set of measures to at least mitigate the impact of the hard times on our people and at the second level, get us out of these hard times. Now, why these first two parts of the presentation are important is uh, because there's been a lot of um, chatter and accusation that 
um, the economic management team on his watch has not handled the economy well and does not have a plan to get us out. And it is important right from the onset, which is what he did in his presentation, to situate the entire conversation in context that, yes, Ghana is having a hard economic time, but those hard economic times are as a result of a number of factors, not necessarily because the economic management team has not been able to handle the, um, uh, the needs of the Ghanaian economy. Indeed, very far from that. And two, there's a clear path to uh, mitigate the impact and get us out. And as I mentioned, that's important because the very persons who are making those accusations, if you look at their tenor of office, or one of the groups of persons making those accusations, if you look at their tenor, you will find that Ghana was in harder times, which were self-induced, and the administration did not have a strategy or a path to get us out, and therefore had to uh, go resort to a bailout program in an attempt to get us out, which attempt from the data available to us was not even successful. So you find out that in the very beginning, he spends a lot of time uh, retreating the acknowledgement of the difficulties in which we are um, and the clarity of a program to get us out. And then he comes to a third point which situates the conversation that, but even in these difficulties, if you respond, and of course he was also speaking to an audience made up predominantly of party persons who were there, he makes a point clearly that even in these difficult times, if you compare the result of the difficult times to what we had a few years ago, which was self-induced and which was then made at the doorstep of uh, the international organizations to bail us out, you will find that today comparatively, though we are in difficult times, today comparatively, many of our indicators are better off than we were at that time. Therefore, if anybody is under the illusion that um, the, the, the opposition party that is one of the strongest voices in these economic times charging at the government uh, is an alternative or has some solutions or has a better way of managing it, then that person uh, ought to be reminded that that is not the case. And then he moves on to a fourth part of his presentation where he speaks extensively about one of the things that his office has been leading, which is the digitization agenda, and how the digitization agenda impacts the economic resurgence agenda on which we are. So it is fair for somebody to say that, you know, we appear to have spent more time on item three than the others, but you will find that all of these four items are very well articulated in this presentation. Okay. Now, just a couple of things that I want you to clear for me. He situated the country's economic problems within certain frameworks and then highlighted three in particular. So he spoke about the uh, excess energy capacity charges, spoke about COVID, and then spoke about the financial sector cleanup, which basically accounted for, what, 50 billion, if my number is, my, my number is like 50.1 billion Ghana cities. And I just want you to break a few things down for us. With the excess energy capacity, 17 billion, where, can you explain that figure over what period? I don't have um, the benefit of the tables in front of me right now. But, okay. of course, the data that we are speaking about or the data that deals with our tenants from 2017 coming forward. Indeed, I've heard some of our colleagues try to suggest that those figures are not um, accurate. As for figures, they can be properly interrogated because Ghana has a way of publishing its figures publicly and having those figures analyzed quite clearly between the 
control and account at the North Department and the Bank of Ghana, a summary of um, fiscal and economic data. You can always do those analysis. I've also had, I think, for example, the dean of the graduate studies of the UPSA, Professor Mensa Mauto, Professor SSB of, uh, I think, IE and Legon, who have had opportunity to look at the data, make it quite clear that the data is credible and that you may have an issue uh, with what you perceive as maybe a changed position, but the data is what it is and it is being spoken to. But I think one of the things, and I, if, if I had your introduction, well, one of the things that needs to be spoken to is um, the causes of the difficulties in which we are. And there's this attempt to suggest that um, the goalpost has been shifted and that at first um, everything appeared to be blamed on COVID. And now there's an attempt to bring in capacity charges, etc. I think it should be stated clearly that from 2017, we have been consistent, the Vice President has been consistent in talking about the fact that the excess capacity charges are adding to our borrowing and payment tables extraordinary expenditure items. Talk about the fact that the financial sector bailout are also adding to our tables extraordinary borrowing and extraordinary spending. And then you have COVID, and then you have Russia, Ukraine also hitting us. And I think the argument he made on Thursday is that if you put all of those together and you net it out of, let's say, what we have directly been responsible for managing, you'll find that the situation is even way, way, way better than what it is um, today. And I think that's the principle of the argument that he's been making. What I believe somebody who disagrees with that, that ought to do is to come forward with their data and also do a net out. And tell us that when I also net my version of the data out, the situation is probably worse or not significantly different. And when I say net out, I'm not talking about when I net out, I get 0.2% less or more than yours. No, I'm talking about significant deviation from the principle of the argument that the Vice President has been making. And so the argument remains consistent. And if you look at what the NPP administration from 2017 to now has been responsible for, and you uh, do not include these extraordinary items, capacity, COVID, financial sector, uh, Russia and Ukraine, on it, you will find a significant deviation between where we are today and where those analyses will leave you. I, I do understand him trying to create that picture. So basically, if you had not had, he had, the government had not had to make those decisions, perhaps the country's position, financial position, would be much more different. And so basically the government's hand was forced to make those decisions. But I'm looking at the financial sector cleanup, $25 billion. And I'm asking myself, you talk about self-induced. These are decisions the government made. There were those who suggested different alternatives to how to handle that matter. $25 billion is a significant Absolutely. amount of money. Absolutely. Considering well, the size of the GDP of this country. So you, right. you should take you that blame, right. shouldn't you not? You chose so that strategy. Makes, no, so government makes decisions, and those decisions come at a cost. So, for example, even COVID. Of course, we have to take the quote-unquote blame for the fiscal impact of COVID. Because government elected not to fold its arms and let people die. Government elected to invest a lot of money into ensuring that schools were safe and logistics were provided for schools to be reopened. Government invested a lot of money to ensure that, you know, PPEs for medical uh, workers and frontline health workers at a time when 
everybody was demanding, just get us the, the masks and the PPE. We don't want to hear anything. Just get it for us. Government took a decision to do all of those things. And government is responsible for those decisions. But I think the point that the Vice President is making is that these are decisions that you are forced to take because of the exigencies of the situation. These are decisions that you are taking not because you came to government with a program to take those decisions, per se, but they are decisions that the times require you to take. And though you take those decisions on your own accord, uh, because they are decisions that your hands are forced to make, you should have the room to be able to offer a cogent explanation about why we have incurred this extra cost. I mean, I'll give you another example. If you look at what um, uh, is happening in Europe right now, a lot of countries are having to spend a lot of money on defense now, spending a lot of money we talk about defense arms and ammunition because they are sending a lot of it to Ukraine to support in the situation that is coming there. That's going to cost them a lot of money. They're going to have to borrow a lot of money uh, to be able to do that. Of course, it is their decision to support Ukraine. But that decision, which they are responsible for, will come back and hit their financing tables. They will not run away from the fact that on their watch, their debt levels have risen. But it is important that they explain clearly that their hands were forced by what is happening in Ukraine, the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, and that's why they've had to take those decisions. So back home, financial sector is a clear example. Uh, capacity charges, for example, that we are talking about, which figures I'm sure some of my colleagues will dispute because they've been disputing. These are expense items that we have incurred not because we enjoy it or because it's of our own doing. It's because they are contractual obligations which we find unconscionable and have been working to reduce and have reduced some, but we are compelled to pay those amounts of money. It's a choice you have to make to pay or to default and get into some more difficulties. And, Godfrey, I'm sure you recall instances where some of the ITPs have issued no threats that if we don't get our payment after the contract by this date, we will cut the power. And the administration makes a determination that, no, we will not let the country go into darkness. But that decision will come at a cost based on the contract that has been prioritized. So, yes, you are right. These are decisions the administration has been forced to make. And it will impact our um, debt levels, but it is also important to provide a clear explanation as to why they've been incurred. Now, could you reading um, the vice president's speech, especially on borrowing, for instance, and I'm, I'm staying a bit on borrowing because he had consistently said previously that. Okay, there's an echo. There's an echo in the line, so I can hardly hear you. Um, okay, we'll try and work on that, but uh, I'm hoping you can hear me. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Thank you very much. So I'm saying I'll stay a bit with the boring, if you will bear with me, uh, based on the fact that the vice president had repeatedly said that and had criticized, since, again, he did situate some of his points in an us versus them, had criticized the previous government for excessive borrowing. Now, he, in making those arguments, had indicated that there was wealth to be found in Ghana. The money was here. Then, five years down the line, there's economic difficulty. The country is borrowing a lot of money. He mounts a platform and says, well, we've had to borrow because of A, B, C, and D. You do not find that position a bit tenuous, considering what his position has always been. <coughs> so, um, 
Yes, the vice president articulated clearly in terms of that. And he may not have added that, uh, that set of words. I'm adding it, but that's yes. clearly the context in which you were speaking. He made the argument some years ago that if there's nothing extraordinary happening and all you are doing is trying to mobilize revenues to meet your expenditures, normally properly so-called, then what you have to do is to get more creative and innovative on domestic resource mobilization, not just an unbridled attempt to borrow to meet your everyday expenditure items. Remember that those were the days in which some of our primary balances were in the negative, which means that we were actually borrowing before we could satisfy the basic expenses of government, not talk about extraordinary items. That was true then, and it is true now. What the, price, um, what the Vice President has said today is that, yes, today you have seen some borrowing. And by the way, don't interpret what he said to mean that, therefore, there's no need to borrow at all, or therefore there's no borrowing at all, because that is the sort of interpretation that some persons have tried to uh, make a, a very simplistic and put onto his comments. Mm. That if, if you are in an ordinary expenditure program, nothing extraordinary has happened, then you should not be resorting to unbridled borrowing with the view that that's how you're going to grow your economy. You need to look more at domestic resource mobilization to achieve that. Hello? Yeah, because I can hear you. Please continue. Uh -huh. Now, as I mentioned, that has been misinterpreted by some to mean that, um, you know, there'll be no borrowing at all. Because even for liability management, even for meeting liquidity, sometimes you would borrow before your inflows fall due. Companies that are sometimes the most profitable even have overdraft lines because sometimes there's a difference between the data which your revenue takes you and when your expenditures are due. So that's not the point. But a point that he was making when you bring it to today is quite clear that if you do not have any extraordinary expenditure items, yes, you should be looking more towards domestic resource mobilization and getting more innovative and maybe even aggressive there to mobilize revenues to meet your expenditure obligations. What the Vice President has said is that today, you have at least about four extraordinary expenditure items. I know somebody may not like that and may say, ah, he's making excuses, or ah, the MPP is making excuses. No. But you need to examine and ask yourself, is that true or not? 2020, I mean, 2012 to 2014, thereabouts, were there any extraordinary expenditure items of this nature? Or were there expenditure difficulties self-induced by the administration. And I think an uh, 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 passionate or a dispassionate analysis of it will show quite clearly that going to the 2012 elections and the kind of expenditures uh, that were incurred, which were not induced by any of these external factors, brought us into a situation where 2013-2014, we now could not mobilize enough domestic resources to satisfy the expenses that we had committed ourselves to and therefore started having a fiscal crisis which translated into a currency and monetary crisis and then a broader economic crisis and then we had to go to the IMF. That is very different from today where you have a number of extraordinary items uh, which he has outlined. You've got COVID which is hit us significantly and nobody should underestimate the impact of COVID. You have the financial sector cleanup which is an extraordinary item. In fact, at the point it became a debate between um, the minority and uh, us, because even when the IMF came in, the IMF initially said it was so extraordinary that it should be treated below the line. And when the IMF finished their program with that, the minority started raising concerns to retreat the IMF's point that it should be brought above the line. And our argument was that, but if, 
if this was so extraordinary that it should be treated below the line, what I think that it should now be brought above the line. They have the capacity charges scenario, which was the same thing. Not an ordinary item, an extraordinary item, which was also being treated below the line by the IMF itself. And then when they finished the program, uh, there was a suggestion that then bring it above the line. So the difference between the two scenarios, somebody may not like it, is the fact clearly that the circumstances during which the government in 2012, 2013, 2014 was resorting to unbridled borrowing without any extraordinary international crisis compelling it to do so or any set of local uh, extraordinary items compelling it to do so other than that which it had self-induced are very different from today's circumstances where um, you have all of these international issues hitting you and you even have domestic issues that your hands are tied to that you have to deal with. And again, I say that while somebody may not be happy about it because um, it may come across as, you know, you said this then and you said that now. It's a very simple way to look at it. Look beneath the arguments and look at the supporting pillars and ask yourself, is it true or not? Okay. Now, let me just ask the last round of questions on this because I know you, you have to uh, go and do other things. But it was also quite... Well, it could not be missed, the E-Levy question, but he missed it. Did what he was not? the question? No, I'm saying that the e because everybody was expecting him to talk about the E-Levy in much more detail ah, than so the, the is, single um, mention okay, of it. So the question is, how much detail did he provide on it? He, 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 well, if you look at it, Kojo, one would say he kind of avoided it. No, he didn't. So first of all, he mentioned it as part of the... And I told you he spoke about four things. He spoke about um, the measures that we are taking to mitigate the impact and get us out of the current situation in which we are. And within that context, he spoke about the EV. I think it's true that a lot of people were expecting him to give a very detailed set of comments on the electronic transactions levy for two reasons. One, because he has been the champion of digitization in this country. And I think that that is commendable. He's been one of the very first and strong voices on digitization and its impact and why we should digitize a lot more. Indeed, the fourth part of his presentation was extensively about digitization. So if a digital sphere is now attracting a levy, a lot of people were expecting him to do a connection between the two. Um, and then secondly, he had also been on record on talking about the fact that Momo in general, we should be careful about taxing it because a lot of poor people use it. And that if you tax Momo, you'll be taxing the poor. I mean, um, Prophet, I think that these are the two main reasons for which people were expecting a very elaborate set of remarks from him on the subject of the electronic levy. Am I right? Not necessarily so, but considering that of the measures that are being taken by government, the e-levy is perhaps the most significant of them all. It could not be simply worth just a mention on such a platform, with such well, timing? I mean, significance is a matter we may debate, because there are monetary policy measures, some of which are most significant in arresting the slide of the currency. There are some of the fiscal measures, some of which are quite draconian. 20% plus acting expenditures, in my view, are a lot more significant than 6 point something billion, which may not all be achieved. Uh, because of the delays we have had. So the debate on significance, I won't want to go into that one. But I guess the simplest answer to this is that
the ELV is a matter that I think extensively we have, as a government, spoken to across this country and answered every single question on. I can understand why some people want to hear him do an elaborate set of remarks on it, but it should not be missed that his presentation was a fair in a series of presentations by government dealing with various issues. And we have dealt extensively with the electronic transactions levy, traveling from Takari to Koforidia to Wa to uh, Ho and to other places, engaging the Ghanaian public, engaging in parliament, on mass media platforms, explaining the why and dealing with the fact that those two principal issues, one, digitization will not be compromised by e-levy, I have to respond to, and it's been responded to ad nauseum. The second matter of dealing with the poor, the vice president himself was very instrumental, and I don't think I break my cabinet oath when I say this, because I believe it serves a good purpose. He was very instrumental in the cabinet meetings and the EMT meetings to ensure that, that his principled argument of protect the poor was upheld. And that is why the threshold of 100 Ghana cities, which accounts for about 40% of Momo transactions on a daily basis, 40%. 40% was excluded from uh, this levy. So in substance, the two issues, in my view, that people would want to hear him speak to have been addressed. It may have been nice if he, you know, repeated all of those ones that have been addressed, but he necessarily didn't need to do that. All right. Thank you very much, Kojo Pongkrum, my Minister of Information, for your time this <laughs> thank morning. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> uh, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, I will move on now and speak to Dr. Kobi Mensah before I come in and uh, hear Suhine's thoughts and then we'll hear from Dr. Dixon Adumaku Kisi a bit later on because I've spent a, quite a bit of time with Kojo Pongkrum explaining the government's side of the matter. So I will give a, uh, as much time to Suhini as well to explain his part of the divide. But Dr. Kobi Mensah is coming from this, from a different perspective. So Kobi, I, I will ask, uh, Dr. Mensah, sorry, forgive me for being too familiar. Um, the first question I guess I would ask is the first question I asked Koju because you deal with political communication and marketing a lot. The platform that Dr. Baumia chose and the style of what he chose to do, what were your observations? Thank you, Kujo, uh, and then thank you, uh, my fellow panelists. Thanks for having me on the platform, too. Uh, firstly, I think that uh, you're very right in questioning the, the platform. Uh, why? Because, you know, the platform that would have actually, you know, uh, been comfortable in terms of talking about, you know, national issues for many people to have listened to and perhaps you know, made their judgment. Is quite different from the kind of a political or partisan platform that he used. I mean, everybody is actually expecting Baumia to speak on the economy, but he chose a platform that would actually make him compare or force him to compare themselves with the NDC. And so you realize, as you rightly put it, that he anchored his speech very much, of course, on COVID and then, of course, on Russia, Ukraine. And thirdly, he mirrored it or he anchored it on comparison between NDC and NPP, which is not what Ghanaians actually want. Because when you do that, then of course you kind of frame the conversation completely differently. And then you create some kind of salience for things that people aren't really interested in. And I think that's why the platform was wrong. So I absolutely agree with you that the platform was questionable. But of course they would actually argue that you could actually choose any other platform to make a policy statement. That is not in doubt. But we're saying that 
because of the platform that he chose, he sort of anchored the speech completely differently than he would have done if the platform was very much, uh, very much national and very much, so to speak, you know, a partisan. But again, um, as we heard the information minister, he covered all his points in his estimation because he did deal with the political side of this by looking to engage critics of the government and of him and what he has done with the economy over the past five or six years. And then sought to also explain what uh, he had done. But in looking at that, there have also been those who observe a trans the, the, the transition from Baumia, the candidate, to Baumia, the politician. Your mm. thoughts again on that in using the platform that he had to address the mm. country's economic issue? Yeah. I think, uh, to be very frank, I, I, I feel that uh, Baumia, as a candidate, hadn't actually changed from him as a, a politician or a government or a, a, what do you call a, a, a vice president in his political communication. Why? Because uh, in 2019, uh, we began a program or a research on what we call post-truth. Uh, we're looking at how you know, politicians actually do selective you know, reasoning. Uh, in trying to persuade the people. And that style hasn't changed. Now, if you listen to his lecture, he is most of the time, you know, applying what we call false causes. Uh, he chose events in history that would actually justify why another event is happening, i.e., you know, establishing or trying to establish what we call, you know, cause and, uh, cause and effect, you know, with events. But, of course, when you go into it, you realize that that is not exactly the case at all. I mean, the idea that he paints that uh, the, the NPP's performance has been affected by COVID and, of course, by Russia, without you know referring to the NDC's time with obviously the the the, the credit crunch, and then of course the Ebola, and then of course at the time we also had Dumso, for example, which. He refers to uh, their internal challenges as the banking cleaner. Uh, the banking cleaner. I mean, when you want to do justice to you know conversations and want to kind of contextualize you know performances, you would want to be very objective if that's what you want to achieve by comparing situations with yours and the others. But you do not actually anchor yours on some difficulties because people can really relate to now, and then on the other side, try to say that, yeah, they were actually, you know, uh, what you call self-cause because they, you know, uh, uh, made it happen. I mean, these are non-factual issues. These are very much in you know, a subjective and very much partisan. So I think that his style hasn't changed. He had always employed, deployed a very, you know, sort of subtle propaganda in the way he persuaded or in the way that he nudges us to actually align to his reality. And I think that has not changed. So for me, Baumia had always been doing that. Only that the minority who can actually see to it are actually bundled by the majority belief, because obviously he's sort of like the, the authorized knower of economics. Who are you to challenge him when a lot of people believe that? Yes, he's actually the one who can actually speak to the economic numbers, et cetera. 
So when people sort of, the majority sort of tend to believe like this, the minority who could actually see through that strategy, that theory of you know, trying to nudge all of us to align to his reality, are very much afraid to actually come to challenge him because obviously the majority are actually on his side and he's been using that. I mean, we remember when he confronted you know, former uh, vice president of blessed memory, Emisata, to, to those number of questions. At a time, it was difficult for Emisata to come because there's a majority belief that yes, what he was saying is true. In actual fact, there were a lot of inaccuracies. And I had actually spoken to quite a number of my colleagues in the finance department. And quite a lot of people have recognized and agreed that indeed he picked and chose you know, his fact to present as facts to us. And a lot of people were aligned to it. Now, in that case, it was difficult for Emisata to come and respond because obviously there's a dominant truth out there, which aren't necessarily true. So these are kind of things that he had actually been using over the years, and he's still using it. And people are actually, you know, claiming, why would he use a very partisan platform? Because people would cheer him up and then present it as if exactly what he's saying is true. And that's what he's been actually applying. But um, again, looking at the platform that he chose and the context of it, even if you look at the theme of the platform upon which he was one, commitments without inducement, can a case not be made for the fact that he was also there to reinvigorate a base? And for that to happen, the message has to go in a certain way. So mm. uh, a situation where he's torn between reinvigorating a base and giving mm. them a message to use and mm. then addressing a nation. How, how does that one place that weight? Absolutely. I mean, you, you actually present the picture very rightly. That's exactly why we thought that was the wrong platform. Because that was a propaganda platform. I mean, the, the fact is that majority of Ghanaians wanting to hear from you, your perspective, because we know you on e level. We know your position on the economy. We know what you have said in the past about the economy. We know what we are experiencing now. So if you want to respond to those, you know, concerns or those, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, issues, then, of course, you don't do it within a base or you don't do it on a base platform. I, I know that, you know, what happened there was about him trying to, you know, launch, you know, so to speak, the competition. You know, obviously, he's actually facing internal competition going forward with their, with their uh, what do you call their primaries. So one, of, one way or the other is to rekindle his base, to galvanize his base, to mobilize them, to, to be seen as the best or the fitting candidate for the party. But that's completely different you know, object you know, from a nation that is actually looking forward to answers, having said so many things in the past. So there's a nation that is actually expecting you to do that, but you rather choose a platform that can catapult you to the leadership. That was completely wrong. So I think that it was a propaganda, you know, that was somehow, you know, fused into a certain objectivity of a narrative that couldn't actually come. I mean, there were quite a lot of, you know, uh, kind of uh, pronouncements, the use of transformation. I mean, come on, how many of us feel that there is a transformation in any part of this country? None of us. I don't think that any of us can boldly feel that there had been a transformation in one way or the other. But then we acquired because a lot of us, may not be able to associate with the kind of you know class that he talked about transformation because if you are part of the 
the, the middle class, and he's talking about transformation, you know, at the base, the, 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 what we call the, the, the base of the pyramid. Of course, because you're not part of that class, you wouldn't actually be able to tell whether transformation as a result of ESHS is true or not. And the very people who can actually tell do not also have access to Baumia to question him. So it makes it difficult for people to confront and to think, well, are we in a transformed Ghana or we're not? It is very difficult for people to tell. Yet this, you know, uh, uh, what do you call the, the, the vice president would, would use words like that and will go scot-free and then people would actually hail him on that. So I think that it is very dicey, uh, the way he actually approaches his communication, very much infused with a very delicate, you know, uh, uh, what do you call propaganda. Uh, but then, of course, as you said, if you really wanted to speak to Ghanaians and to the fact, he wouldn't choose a partisan platform. He would actually choose a much more, you know, national, so to speak, a much more, you know, uh, what do you call elaborate platform than, than, than the, the partisan one. But, but, but come to think of it, did he need to? Because um, the president has spoken on what the measures are. The Bank of Ghana boss has spoken on what the plans are. The finance minister, and both of them have spoken on very national platforms. Everybody has heard them. Uh, the president spoke at the State of the Nation, if I'm not mistaken. The BOG boss basically gives a weekly update of what they are doing. The finance minister has been going around the country and has also spoken in parliament and other places on what the measures are. So one would say, well, Baumia is excused if he so decides to use a different form of communication because the main elements of what the government wants to do over the past month or so have been addressed first by his boss, the president, addressed by the person who manages the economy in the finance minister, addressed by the person who looks at the currency matters of the country in the BOG mm -hmm. boss. So mm -hmm. if he decides to go a different line out of expectation based on where he is, why should we be upset? But absolutely the strategy. I mean, we, we, we in the media talk about source credibility, all right? Now, Baumia is the, the authorized knower. You know of these issues in terms of economy in terms of you know so they're using him for believability i mean the fact is if the finance minister speaks if the president speaks people may see it from the position of partisanship and the position of they trying to paint a picture if baumia speaks perhaps all the entire nation would would actually hear him and would believe him so they are using him to nudge us into their line of reality because people ascribe credibility to him and especially the ascribed economic competences to him. So he would come up to say things that already had been said by the finance minister, by the president, but with the idea that because he has that kind of source credibility, we would believe that we wouldn't have, you know, for uh, the president or for uh, the, 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 the minister for finance. Again, the, the resource to data is another way of, you know, nudging us to sort of believe in their thinking because everybody thinks that data is objective reality and so he keeps saying oh the data says the data says but the data is not speaking to people's realities on the ground you keep saying it it's as if you want to speak into being as jesus would do to say that this happens and it happens you keep referring to the data consistently the data has naturally reflected in people's lives you keep making references to cheaper borrowing in this country, 
Are people actually getting access to loans? That's the question. So they are using, you know, Baumia as, you know, the source of truth in order to paint a reality that does not exist, frankly. So for me, yes, there was no need for him to speak because finance minister has spoken, the president has spoken. But why would you, by all means, speak? Because they think that he's a source that people probably could believe. And he's been doing that since 2016. That's the source of authority in terms of economic matters. That's the source of the middle classes, you know, information. So Baumia speaks and that's it. Everybody must believe it. Mm. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kobimesa, for your thoughts on this matter. Uh, thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, I will take a quick break. When I return, uh, you will hear from Dr. Patrick Swimming Economist, Alassan uh, Suhini, Member of Parliament for Tamale North. Uh, Franklin is also with us. And then we'll hear from Dr. Dixon Adumaku Kisi, Member of Parliament for Anyasu, when we begin the next round of conversation. The Big Issue will be right back. Welcome back to The Big Issue on CCTV and also on City 973 on radio. My name is Godfrey Akutopoa for discussing... Uh, the vice president's lecture on the economy uh, on Thursday, where he raised quite a few issues, spoke about the fact that, yes, yeah, he did admit that there had been significant borrowing, but uh, said the borrowing had been done within a certain context, um, spoke about measures that the government had put in place to handle the economic uh, difficulties, blamed uh, the Ukraine conflict, COVID, as well and um, spoke about digitization significantly. In fact, I think the last 20 minutes of his entire presentation, if you look at the presentation from page 80 to page 109, deals with digitalization. Uh, so it means that's also crucial. And uh, we've been trying to make sense of that. We've spoken to the information minister, Kujopon Kroma. Uh, we've spoken to a political communications expert, Dr. Kobe Mensah, uh, on what his thoughts were on the disposition uh, of Dr. Mahmoud Baumi. You can also share your thoughts with us. I'll be reading a couple of messages in a bit. WhatsApp lines 0549 and 0550-585832. 0550-585832. Let me just repeat those again. 0549-986996 and 0550-585832. For those of you who prefer Twitter, at City973 is the handle. Hashtag the big issue. Hashtag the big issue or you can reach me as well uh, on at East Sportsman with the same hashtag. Or you can as well go on Facebook, uh, City973 uh, on Facebook, on our wall. You can share the, uh, the link there. And then also CityTVGH, same thing. And then later, if you do miss out, YouTube, CityTube, C-I-T-I-T-U-B-E, uh, you can catch a playback. So back in studio, and I'll now come to you, um, Alassan Suhini, Member of Parliament for Tamale North. And we had the Vice President mount a very strong defense of his government's economic policy and strategy, whilst also drawing your party's record with the economy into play and saying, well, you do not have a right to criticize, looking at how well they have performed and how well they have managed the difficulties that they have found themselves in to put the economy on this kind of footing. And in doing so, saying that we will get better. Uh, in fact, the big headline on Friday was, we are building a new economy, Baumia. What say you to his presentation? Well, um, good morning, Godfrey. Good morning to Doc and uh, to our colleagues 
who are with us virtually, and also to our viewers, mm. especially the very good people of mm. the Tamarinov constituency. Let me just say to my other panelists, <clears throat> I will give Suhini a significant amount of time on this matter because I did give Kujopo Nkrumah a significant amount of time. And since Suhini is the only one here thank speaking for, for the, the NDC, I will give him a significant <laughs> amount of time on this one. So thank you on, for, for this particular promise. round. Right. So let me start by just uh, expressing my heartfelt condolences to the Al Haji Ali Muhammad family. Um, early this morning, I passed uh, to the family house before uh, coming to this uh, program. Uh, there was a Quranic recitation in the house, uh, after which the body uh, of Hajia uh, Ramatu, the wife of uh, the Former. late Vice President Al Haji Ali Muhammad, will be flown to Tamale uh, for burial. Uh, so on this note, I just want to convey my heartfelt condolences to uh, the family and pray that Almighty Allah will grant our mother, uh, Janatul Firdaus. Um, as for the lecture and the discussion of uh, choice of platform, mm. um, I don't think it makes any difference. I mean, mm -hmm. um, they say no matter how well you decorate a donkey, it's still an ass. And so... Uh, a platform wouldn't have made any significant difference. Dr. Baumia uh, is still who he is, uh, still saying the things that he says, and uh, still, you know, misrepresenting and misreporting and uh, doing analysis that, you know, really are just political propaganda analysis. So the platform doesn't matter. I think that he has now found you know, his appropriate platform. In the past, yeah, I think that in the past it was, there was this pretension of uh, putting him on some neutral platforms where he will go and engage in propaganda, pure propaganda. You know, so I think he's now found an appropriate platform that suits his talents. So I don't really <laughs> have an issue with the choice of, of platform. Now, Godfrey, mm. in his own ways, and his, in his own, ex, by his own explanation, he revealed a number of things, right. even to, I'm sure, the disappointment of some NPP communicators. He revealed a number of things, and he also misreported a number of things. For example, he tells us that COVID is the list of our problems as far as our economic challenges are concerned today in his own ways and by his own explanation. He tells us that COVID is the list of our problems. And that's why I'm saying maybe to the disappointment of even NPP communicators, because all along we have been told severally on different platforms by different NPP communicators that our problem is largely because COVID hit. The vice president tells us mm -hmm. that when you look at the financial sector cleanup, mm -hmm. the cost was 25 billion Ghana cities. Yes, you look seven. at the excess capacity that he claims is one of the problems that they are having to deal with. 17 billion Ghana cities. Mm -hmm. Then he says COVID-19 pandemic contributes to 8.1 billion to our deficit. 8.1. So in his presentation and his analysis, he identifies three problems, three mm -hmm. major problems. Yes. Financial sector cleanup, excess capacity, and COVID. Mm -hmm. And COVID, per the figures, is the list of our problems. 
not the least of the problems. Is the three main problems. The three main problems that he identified. Yes, it is, so it is not the is least, the of, least the problems, of the problems. So no, the COVID. He identified three main problems, which included COVID. Which included COVID. Yes. But of the three, COVID is the least. Uh, <laughs> figures. I mean, I, I don't know if you, are, you want me to go over it again. No, no, no. The he says are, that, I'm just saying it's the context example, in which you are trying to no, situate no, it. No, no, Godfrey, he says that we have a 50.1 billion problem. Which includes COVID. A 50.1 billion Ghana cities problem. Mm -hmm. And that problem, that 50.1 billion Ghana cities, is as a result of COVID, mm -hmm. excess capacity charges, mm -hmm. and, and the financial sector, sector cleanup. Clean yes. Three problems. Yes. And I'm saying that if you look at the financial sector cleanup, 25. the problem is a 25 billion problem. Mm -hmm. The excess capacity charges, according to his, him, the problem is a 17 billion problem. Mm -hmm. The COVID problem is an 8 billion problem. But then there are other problems too. I'm talking about the 50 billion problem he identified. Okay, go on. And so when you total it, it's a 50 billion problem. And I'm saying that to the disappointment of MPP communicators, clearly, he has, by this accession <clears throat> and analysis, shown that COVID is the list of our problems to deal with as far as our deficit, you know, situation is concerned. And he makes another interesting revelation mm -hmm. that without the 50 billion problem, mm -hmm. our debt to GDP would have been 69%. Currently, we are doing over 80% debt to GDP, around 80%. Mm -hmm. But he says that without that 50 billion, our debt to GDP would have been what? 69 percent mm -hmm. now let's look at the components of that 50 billion problem which has in his own estimation catapulted our debt to gdp to about 80 percent who do we hold responsible for that 50 billion problem let's look at the issues that he raises with that 50 billion problem. He talks about, for example, the biggest one, the financial sector bailout. Yes. Which is about 25 billion. Now, clearly, this was a government reckless decision to collapse banks that had problems. The approach that they use was not the only approach available to them. But perhaps the most prudent. If it were the most prudent, we wouldn't have had a situation where we are using 25 billion, you know, Ghana cities to save nine banks that only required 5 billion to be saved. To, I mean, to collapse nine, nine banks that required 5 billion to be saved. We needed 5 billion, according to the experts, 5 billion Ghana cities to save these banks. The government thought that 5 billion was too much to save those banks. And so use an approach that led to the collapse of these banks leading to job losses, and now turns back to tell us that the cost of that collapse is 25 billion Ghana cities. I mean, who does that? Who uses 25 billion to solve a problem or to claim to be solving a problem that could have been solved with 5 billion? And with the 5 billion, you would have saved jobs, you would have had, you know, a, a financial... Uh, 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 you would have had liquidity in the system for businesses because you know the number of businesses that depended on these financial institutions to expand and to grow. Mm -hmm. 
with 5 billion, you would have saved a lot of jobs. So clearly, when you listen to him and he says that without the 50 billion, our debt to GDP would have been 69% and not the 80 that we are currently dealing with. And the biggest contributor to the 50 billion is the financial sector bailout, which is about 25 billion. And the analysts pointing to the fact that we could have solved that financial sector problem with 5 billion, then clearly it makes it, it drives home the point that the government used a wrong approach in dealing with the banking sector crisis. And that is why we are having to, you know, pay for it dearly as a country. So that is with the financial sector, you know, uh, 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 cleanup. And maybe for the first time in a very long time, let me agree with Professor Stephen Adai. You know, what even you if say? he comes to the realization a little too late. That? That our biggest problems, as far as our economy is concerned, was with the, you know, approach of government in dealing with the financial sector crisis. And he makes that point about why, I mean, why anybody thought it was sensible to use 25 billion Ghana cities to say to collapse nine banks that required only five billion to be saved. Well, according to you. Not according to me, according to the experts. I mean, it's it's been out there for some time now. Now, let's examine the figures that Dr. Baumia also puts out. I said he made a lot of revelations, but he also peddled a lot of falsehoods. But I started by analyzing the, 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 the presentation, you know, on the face of it as it is presented, without questioning any of the figures. That is with my first analysis. Sure. But now let's look at the figures. Mm -hmm. He talks about excess capacity charge. I yes. told you about the financial sector, and I say mm -hmm. we know where that problem is coming from. The second problem is with the excess capacity charge mm -hmm. and the attempt to blame the previous government for it. And that is what is interesting because when you look at the figures there, clearly, I believe he peddled a falsehood, unfortunately, in the month of Ramadan, when I believe he was fasting. Because I'll share with you, Cofred, mm -hmm. the handset of Parliament. Okay. From. This is uh, Thursday, 17th June 2021. Okay. This is the Hansard of Parliament, official report. I asked the Minister of Finance mm -hmm. a question. Read your question, please. Mr. Speaker, I beg to ask the Minister for Finance which independent power producing companies have received payment from the government of Ghana for excess capacity charges and how much was paid to each company in the last four years? Okay. That was my question. This was the minister's answer. Minister of Finance. Himself. Himself. Okay. Mr. Speaker, these are very important issues of power for us as a country. Mr. Speaker, the underlisted independent power producers have received payments for excess capacity charge for the period under review, 2017 to 2020, totaling 937 Point five million US dollars. Totaling 937.5 million dollars in four years. In four years. Dr. Baumia claims that we pay one billion dollars annually a year in his presentation. 
That is clearly false. That is a palpable lie. He, by his assertion, is saying that we paid four billion in the last four years. Mm -hmm. Four billion US dollars. And so I don't know the exchange rate he used, but he brings the figure to 17 billion Ghana cities. Now, if you. Perhaps is that not the size of the hole that they are in rather than how much they have paid? No, they are talking about deficit. You're talking about how much you've paid. Mm -hmm. I was talking about how much we pay mm -hmm. and that this is the amount we pay to independent power producers. Mm -hmm. And his figure is 17 billion. And I'm saying the finance minister tells us that in the last four years, we have paid less than, you know, a billion to these independent power dollars, producers. You mean. Dollars. But if you convert it, it doesn't come anywhere near the 17 like billion. Four or five billion. Yeah, it doesn't come anywhere near the 17 billion. Now, he even goes ahead to list the companies that benefited from these payments. AXA, Car Power, Send Power, and all of that. Now, if you do the calculation, in fact, my follow-up question, mm -hmm. I had a follow-up question, and I said, the speaker, um, the Honorable Minister's answer is in the form of a range, a period under review, 2017 to 2020. Will the minister be kind enough to break it down to how much we paid for each year? I asked for that. And then he gives us the answer. Mr. Speaker, the amount, as I stated, from 2017 to 2020, totals 937.5 million. The breakdown is as follows. AXA, 2017, he gives the figure. 2018, he gave the figure. Uh, 2020, he gives the figure. 2019, he gives the figure. It's all here. I just don't want to waste our time, but it's all here. Now, I have taken the pains to do the calculation. So, the annual payment is... 2017, 101 million. Mm -hmm. 2018, 168 million. 2019, 360.8 million. 2020 is 306 million. So in no year have we paid close to a billion US dollars, not even half of a billion US dollars, in no year in the last four years. Mm -hmm. So that lie has to be settled. And I ask this question because Many government communicators had peddled this falsehood around for far too long. And I thought there was a need to put the record straight and to settle the matter once and for all. And that's why I asked this question. So I even went ahead in my second, you know, question, supplementary question, to ask the Minister of Finance to determine for us the number of megawatts that was determined to be in excess for which we had to pay 937 million Ghana, I mean, US dollars, US dollars for. And interestingly, Godfrey, the Minister of Finance said he didn't have the, the number of megawatts. And you know why that is interesting? That's like buying a pick in a poke. Because how, do you, how did you arrive at the 937 million being what you owe for excess capacity that you don't know? The minister, in his answer, it's, it's right here. I can, I can, I can, I can read it. Um, uh, I will be, Mr. Speaker. I think the House will be grateful if the minister is able to give us a. No, this was after he said he didn't have it. Mm -hmm. Mr. Speaker, will the Honourable Minister be kind to also let us know the quantity of megawatts determined to be excess for which these payments were made? Then his answer, Mr. Speaker, I think it's a legitimate question. Mm -hmm. Only I am not prepared for it, and so we can bring that to the House, or he could ask. 
another question so that we come to the house and answer. I think you know <clears throat> that the power area, <clears throat> sorry, is a crucial area for all of us. And we need to understand that we have been going through negotiations to bring this. Then I followed up to ask the time frame within which this will come. He said he didn't know. So how did you arrive at the conclusion that this is how much power was produced, which was in excess, for which you were paying $937 million then? That, right. for me, it's interesting. All right. Now Let's move on. Now, now, another figure that is of interest to me is the claim that government spent 472 million Ghana cities on 1G1F. Godfrey, again, the facts don't support that. Dr. Baumia talked about the total, you know, uh, cost of flagship programs. And he makes an interesting revelation there also. He says that interest payment on the banking sector covered and uh, excess capacity amounted to $8.7 billion annually. Mm? Mm -hmm. And then he says the total flagship in investments that they have done for their flagship programs, free SHS, yes. you know, NAPCO, 1D1F, that all of that came to 15 billion Ghana cities in the last five years. Yeah. Now, what that means is that not even the principal, but the interest that we pay on the COVID loans and then the banking sector, financial sector, the interest that we pay, according to him, is $8.7 billion annually. Mm -hmm. If you put the figure together, that's $43.5 billion, far in excess of how much we have invested in even what we call flagship program. Then maybe the interest payment should be the flagship program of government. Yeah, the interest payment should be the flagship program of government. Because even in the last five years, we have paid 15 billion, or we have used 15 billion to promote these flagship programs. But in his own admission, he says that we pay interest, you know, on COVID loans mm -hmm. and the banking sector loans to the tune of 43.5 billion. That should be our flagship, our government flagship program and not these uh, free SHS and others. But the figure that he allocates to 1D1F that is in what that you are presentation disputing. is what I, 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 I find strange. strange and wrong. The 1D... Strange or wrong? I believe it's wrong because I believe the Minister of Trade more. What did he and say? And I also believe the Minister of Trade because he was speaking in Parliament. Okay, what did he say? Unlike Baumia, who was speaking on a political platform. Okay. Baumia claims we have spent 472 million Ghana cities. Again, this is of interest to me because this was a question filed by the Honorable Member of Parliament for Tamale Central, Ibrahim Mohamed Mutala. But on the day in question, he was not on the floor. So I had his mandate to ask the Minister of Trade this question. Mm -hmm. And this was the question. Godfrey. Alhaji. Suhini A. Saibo, on behalf of Mr. Mutala Ibrahim, NDC Tamalinov. That is um, <clears throat> the hands out of parliament. Mr. Speaker, I beg to ask the Honorable Minister of Trade and Industry the number of factories set up in the last four years under the one district, one factory program, and how much government spent for their establishment? Mm. That was the question. Note you have six minutes more. <laughs> okay. So then I will not read the whole answer. I'll just read the relevant portion. He says, Mr. Speaker, since the start of the program, 
government has successfully mobilized loans for 1D1F companies from their participating financial institutions, totaling an amount of 2.69 billion. That they have mobilized loans for these companies from financial institutions. So this is not from government. The 2.69 billion is not from government. It is the loans that they have mobilized from the participating financial institutions. But then he says that this amount has been leveraged through disbursements of an amount of 260.9 million Ghana cities by government mm -hmm. as subsidy to de-risk loans and support interest payment for beneficiary 1D1F companies and projects. So, Godfrey, clearly, what he says here is that government provides subsidy by way of helping these companies to pay the interest on the loans that they mobilize for them. Mm -hmm. And the total expenditure to government, or the total cost to government, is 260.9 million Ghana cities. This is also from last year? This, this year. This oh. was actually February. Oh, okay. This was February this year, 2022. February this year. The first one was last year, but this was February 2022. And yet, Dr. Baumia tells us it's 472 million Ghana cities. When, where does he get his, his figures from? I don't know. But like one of our panelists said, he's been doing this for far too long. And those who should correct it are either shy or they are too respectful of, 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 of the hype that have been, you know, <laughs> put around him. That they cannot call him to order to stop embarrassing, you know, uh, 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 the, 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 the profession the economic profession on, on, on such po political uh, platforms. So, Godfrey, in, in summary, I think that... But before Dr. you do Baumia, the summary, yes. let me just read an opinion for you because, again, on the banking sector cleanup, mm -hmm. you know, you and I had a bit of a yeah. situation on that. And yeah. a thought comes in that says, again, you need to explain your source on the 5 billion one. Mm -hmm. And he says, remember... The minimum capital for operating banks was moved upwards from what yeah. they were, yeah. from 120 million Ghana cities to 400 million recapitalization, yeah. which meant more money was required to be in operation. So Omnibank and IB and others were which given was, extra capital through GATT yeah. so that they could avoid going under. Yeah. So perhaps the person suggests you might need to look at your numbers again. No, you see, that is, that is, that, 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 what I'm saying is that this has been out there for a very long time now. I wonder why the person is raising this issue now. That if we, if, if, when you, after the uh, uh, risk assessment analysis that was done by the Bank of Ghana, uh, the you know choice we had was to uh, uh, let these banks go down mm -hmm. or you know give a bailout, mm -hmm. even though we had given a bailout before that was not properly managed. But it did not mean that you know the 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 choice of a bailout was shut. It was still open to maybe, uh, uh, maybe in the past, if it didn't go well, it's because regulation and, uh, you know, uh, the, the procedures were not put in, in place to ensure that the bailout worked. So you learn a lesson from there, and then you try another method. In fact, Nigeria uh, did similar things, where they had to even at some point uh, 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 take management of these banks from the owners, you know, until it got to a point that they went into some level of partnership 
to return those banks to the people after cleaning it up. So we could we could adopt that measure instead of the approach that was you know uh, uh, more like draconian. Just shut it down, take it, let the people go home, and and now we are faced with the cost of 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 twenty five billion Ghana cities. So it is it is not for me to 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 at this point you know bring back that debate again. The fact is that it has been decided that we could have saved these banks with less than the amount of money we are using as an excuse for the uh, uh, problems that we have found ourselves in. And that is why I think that it is self-inflicted. If we identify the financial sector cleanup as a problem that we are dealing with currently in our economy, we must admit that that was not the only choice we had. But we made that choice, and so it is self-inflicted. And we shouldn't blame anybody, and that was okay. the government's choice. So I'm saying that Dr. Baumia and his uh, advisors clearly, clearly, um, have not read the mood of the town. They, they, they perhaps confuse the mood of the nation with the mood of, 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 of their party. And it seemed to me that it was more of grandstanding for uh, internal political you know, uh, 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 takeover than speaking to the expectations of the ordinary Ghanaian that expected so much from this government. They, they simply did not realize that what the people wanted to know was how come they are having to mobilize more cities now to pay for a dollar when they were told that it was too much paying four cities for a dollar. But he did address the depreciation question. <laughs> but I'm saying, did it, did it answer the, the, the worry of the market woman who is having to mobilize seven or eight CDs now to get a dollar? When that same Baumia told him that it was too much mobilizing four CDs for a dollar, mm -hmm. he didn't understand that the expectation of the you know, uh, uh, people on the street is how come they are paying about 11 cities or more for a gallon of petrol now? So in your summary is too long. I mean, <laughs> so clearly, they, miss, they have missed, they, 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 they misunderstand the mood of the nation, and I think that they better uh, come to the realization that the tricks and the strategies that work in opposition do not always work in government. Thank you very much. Um, I will get to Dr. Patrick, assuming to Giving me an economist perspective on this. I'm trying to I'll, look at I this one. You're hoping to come that that would if be you're not getting if, if you come after him, you must have to go back to him immediately. Right, okay. Okay. <laughs> so okay. let me do it, Doctor. So I'll do a second round, then right. you come in with okay. just okay. A, which is just basically a mop up. Right. You know, um, on this matter. And then we go into the second issue. Doctor Patrick Assuming is also an economist. He's been following the conversation. Franklin Kujo is president of Humanity Africa. Let me deal with Franklin first. Franklin, good morning. Good morning. Yes, thank you for staying on. I, I know you've been observing. Um, oh, yeah. I think, yeah, of course. I mean, uh, Dr. Suming uh, had been on the, uh, should I say, on the call much longer than myself. So wh why don't you go? Okay, then let me deal with Dr. Suming and then I will come to you. Dr. Suming, good morning. Good morning. And uh, good morning to viewers and listeners. Yes, apologies uh, for keeping you on the line. You know, I had to go through a bit of the formality but um looking at this from an 
the, from the perspective of an economist, did you get any new knowledge from listening to the vice president? Um, largely, no. I think what the vice president did uh, in the main follows the scripts that uh, we've seen from the finance minister and uh, the president with a few uh, adjustments and changes. So, uh, which is that the, the economy had been doing well before the COVID-19 and that the COVID-19 had derailed our progress and that, you know, the Russian-Ukraine crisis has added to the problems. And, but there's a strong belief that government has what it takes to resolve the problems. Where we saw some differences was in one in the use of data. You know, significant amount of data had been prepared to help the, the vice president make his points. There are a few areas that he touched on that at least this year the president and the finance minister have not necessarily touched on. He spoke about uh, unemployment. Mm. There was a major admission this time that all our problems are not due to COVID and that the, you know, some other things that had happened prior to the COVID would have contributed to our problems. And then as you also mentioned, there's a chunk of time spent on presenting the digitization agenda, what it has done and uh, you know, what it means going forward. And as you always expect, I think the vice president did a lot of uh, comparison with, uh, with, you know, regime comparison. So, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of, so I think in the main, the speech was a little bit more, uh, you know, reflecting what has happened than, you know, proposing um, new solutions. And perhaps maybe it, it would have been fair to expect the vice president to bring any new solutions because the president has been speaking Obviously, those decisions that have been announced would have been discussed in Parliament, and the mm -hmm. finance, uh, the vice president, sorry, would have been discussed in the uh, at the cabinet, and the vice president is part of that. So you expect that he would have been part of what has happened. So, in the main, I wouldn't say that uh, there was a I, there was any new uh, policy initiative, and then obviously, I also didn't expect before the speech that there would be anything new. But looking at the measures that have been put in place, like in the past month or two, we've heard quite a bit. And the vice president did uh, allude to some of these measures that are being take, undertaken to put the economy uh, back on track. Do you see them working? At least uh, the big one is the currency depreciation issue. Um, since the finance minister spoke and the president spoke and the BOG put in place some measures, have you seen the markets adjusting, for instance? It appears that there's been some response by the markets to some of the measures that has happened. If you look at how the currency moves, over the long to medium term, it is the import, the import versus export. What is happening on the balance of payment, the current account side, is a major factor in how the currency moves in the medium to long term. Then we do have a lot of things that move the currency in the short term. Uh, what, how investors are feeling about government policy 
and economic management. And then when we get short-term inflows from either a syndicated loan or uh, we do an euro bond or any unusual uh, inflows that or outflows that might affect the currency. And then we also do have the seasonality in terms of what happens in the period leading to Christmas, the importation, and then in the period after Christmas, the you know having to pay back some things on credit and also corporations repatriating their profit. So all of those are there. I think the measures that have been put in place right now mostly should address the issues about the government's management of the economy, the management or mismanagement of the economy. So you notice that the moment the ELB was passed and then when it was announced that there was some $2 billion loan coming, the city sort of stabilized a little bit. But in terms of the longer, medium-term structural things, uh, in terms of how uh, every year corporations are going to repatriate profit, and the fact that our export base is not diversified enough, I don't think the measures that we've had address any of that. So what that would mean is that we will, more or less, we will fire the, we, we fire the fire right now. But if next year we get into a situation where we are not getting uh, Eurobonds in the first quarter, or suddenly the mood of investors becomes sour about where the Ghanaian economy is going. We are obviously going to see such huge spike again in terms of the moment of the currency. So in, I think that the, the measures address the short-term side of the currency. I don't think that it addresses the medium to long-term side. But on the currency, I think one thing that the, the vice president likes to do, which I don't think is not is not is, is not helpful, is that he likes to compare a lot. Mm. So he will say, "Oh, in this period, you saw this percent depreciation, and then we are doing much better because the rate of depreciation is lower." That may be well and true, but what the vice president has to understand is that if I run a business. If the city depreciates 20% at an exchange of three cities to a dollar, its impact may not be as high as if the city depreciates only 10% at seven cities to a dollar. Exactly. So in terms of somebody running a business, that kind of information that, oh, the city is depreciating less than it used to, is not very helpful. It's also part of the reason why, even though you say on annual rate, the depreciation is lower, you know, it's part of the reason why the debt, some the standard debt component, when converted to CD, looks bigger. So if you look at all the borrowings that we've done and you put them together and the other domestic things that has happened, you still shouldn't have had the debt going up over almost 220 billion. Part of that is that even though on year-to-year -year basis, you look at the rate is, is smaller or the depreciation is smaller, if you put all of it together, it means that when you are converting your dollar loans at uh, four cities or so, it's much different from if you are converting your dollar loans at seven cities. So it's, it's okay. The vice president will always tell us, oh, the rate of depreciation is lower and lower, but I don't think it doesn't, it doesn't really tell the full picture of how ordinary businesses and ordinary Ghanaians feel the impact of the depreciation currency. Now, finally, just before I, I move to Franklin on you, I, I noticed something that was interesting, and um, I don't know if you noticed the same thing. His 
um, on unemployment, which was a significant line item, his use of the World Bank and ILO estimates. Uh, there are those who say normally those are for academic purposes, and many were also wondering why he chose not to use the Ghana Statistical Service data from the just completed uh, census, which puts it at 13% and or so. Yeah, I think that I, I was quite surprised that he end, even ended at 2020. I think, so first of all, we don't generate the unemployment numbers as regularly as we could. So obviously, if he was using the Ghana Statistical Service, he only have fewer points. But I think for me, the bigger problem with reporting those unemployment numbers is that the structure of the economy that we have the weakness in the labor market and the problem with creating jobs will not necessarily reflect in the headline employment number. It will reflect more in the underemployment and the labor force participation rate. So because the unemployment as calculated is very easy, it takes very little for someone to be classified as employed but it takes a lot before you be classified as unemployed. So I will give you an example. If you are completing unemployment for this month, and this month you work for only one hour, you'll be classified as employed. On the other hand, if this month you didn't have a job, but maybe you've been searching for a job for a long time and you haven't found a job, and you drop out, you are no longer searching, you will not be classified as unemployed. You have exited the labor market. So the aspect of the labor market information that will capture such a person is the labor force participation rate. So you see that a lot of people have dropped outside of the labor force. That tells you that some people have just lost hope in the ability to find a job. The other thing is that if we are competing the unemployment and you finish school, you have been, you've been looking for work and you haven't found and maybe you have a sister or brother who is running a business, and then you just go there and sit and support them, at that point, you'll be classified as employed. So, but then when we look at the underemployment rate, you see that the number or the, the fraction of people who are even classified as working, who are underemployed, mm -hmm. will be very high. So for me, I think simply relying on that headline employment number is not very helpful at all. It doesn't completely capture the seriousness of the unemployment problem we have in our country. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Patrick. Assuming I'll just take a couple of messages and then uh, be back to do a wrap-up on this so then we can finally hear from Dr. Dixon Adobakukisi and then we'll go back to Parliament where we'll still hear from Dr. Dixon Adobakukisi because mm -hmm. he's a parliamentarian as well. But a couple of your messages um, that have come through this morning. Uh, good morning, Godfred and your panelists. Please, since the financial sector cleanup, the government and its communicators have been telling us what the cost of debt has been after the cleanup, but they have failed to tell us the following items they inherited from those collapsed financial institutions. How much cash liquidity did the government inherit from these banks? What was the liquidity equivalent of the assets, that is, vehicles, landed properties, etc., that they inherited? I believe this will help us do a proper analysis of the issue, uh, help us to empathize or criticize the government. And then... Uh, a couple more. Um, 
good morning got read enough of the plenty english all Ghanaians want is how much was a ball of kiki yesterday compared to today that's jones adoboy in labadi um at a time the mpp government is maneuvering in the cost to reduce the number of opposition and ndc mps i am shocked that his ndc side that is fighting with the speaker to stay the referral of those the referral of those three mps to the privileges committee um, this is somebody who's not very uh, roger he's not very happy with uh, the minority chief whip muntaka um Danaya fire from Agonan Saban says before COVID-19 and the Russia-Ukraine war when we asked them to fix the country they asked us to fix ourselves meaning that we were the problem so after COVID-19 and Russia issues they will blame our problems on our skin color what a problem-solving government and then uh, uh, good morning Godfrey we need answers to these questions did he say anything new did he inspire confidence and belief did he show leadership did he give us hope did he unite us as a nation it was blame game as usual, in my opinion. This is coming from Nene from Tema. Uh, we will take um, a quick break. Uh, when we return, uh, we'll wrap up uh, the conversation on uh, Dr. Baumia's lecture with uh, final comments and then move on to Parliament. Uh, welcome back. Uh, you can keep sending your messages uh, to us. I will read them as the show progresses. So let me just do a quick wrap up on this. Franklin, since you are holding on, I'll just go through um, my two in-house panelists and then come and wrap up with you on your thoughts on this matter before we go to Parliament. So, uh, Dr. Admaho Kisi, Member of Parliament for Anya Soto, finally, your, your, yeah. your turn has come. And I'm sure you've heard all that they've had to mm -hmm. say. But I get the feeling of self-satisfaction and objective achieved from the MPP side after the lecture on Thursday. Did you leave there with that impression? Well, um... <laughs> no, at least for the purpose of his speech, not in terms of the, of everything else, but for the purpose for which Dr. Baumia showed up to speak. Well, um, thanks for being here. I've, I've listened to all the others speak, and uh, your, your question is uh, quite... Uh, unusual for me uh, in, in the sense that I think that the goal for Vice President Baumia there was to one, uh, attend to uh, the needs of uh, you know, Tescon uh, students, uh, you know, they invited him for, for the occasion and, and I like the fact that he used that opportunity to also touch on Ghanaian needs um, if the goal was for him to talk at Tescon I think we, 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 we did a good job. Uh, what I'm actually getting from all of us today, uh, if I have the means, I'll tell Gideon maybe we, we haven't had enough of him and, and that uh, he, he might need to do the town halls as well. I mean, that's what, because from what I'm gathering here, uh, you know, he's spoken on so many things and, and we may need further elaboration through town halls. So that's one key thing, which then means that uh, we need more uh, of, of, of his explanations. But I would just narrow on a few things yeah, that Suhini uh, said, and I, I need to somewhat bring Suhini's attention to one key thing. I think the independent power producers are more than three. My mm -hmm. uh, recollection is we have about nine independent power producers in this country. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate that the finance minister had limited 
his argument on just three of them. There's uh, Azogli. Wait up, wait up. There's Azogli and so many others, uh, which um, he knows. Uh, Suhini very much well knows. So uh, I would rather pay attention. I think quite recently, uh, even on Joy News, uh, forgive me for stating, oh, go ahead. Um, is, is very much clear that it's about $12 million, billion uh, dollars that has been paid, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken. From who? It's a lie. From finance ministry. I, that, I, is, I, that is a you, you, Double, double, check, him speak, double check. So as of 2021 20, February, a lot more has been paid, more than the 900 okay. million. This um, was 2021 Juno. Yes. No, 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 uh, you know, this we're trying to be as truthful. Goodness Why? Goodness. How can 2021 uh, June be the same as of to date? It's not. So what I'm trying to educate even, you is that more, more has been paid. More has been paid, and 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 clearly, uh, you need to be updated on on that. Now, another key thing that I want us to talk about: the the real cost of COVID to Ghana, um, on all academic platforms would admit, just like an insurance company, that the real cost of COVID is not just the dollar amount in terms of, uh, you know, what has been paid to alleviate Ghanaians or what has been paid to prevent the spread of the disease. The real cost of COVID will come up later on when we've assessed how many hotels closed down during that period and, and the revenues that were lost to businesses, uh, the revenues that were lost to uh, people who lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. These are the real uh, cost of COVID to Ghana. And, and it should not be limited to just what has been stated, which is the 8 billion. So that is uh, really uh, the, the truth. Mm -hmm. and, and I want people to become aware that it will take barest minimum 10 years for us to really ascertain the real cost of COVID to Ghana. And I think Vice President has been cautious, and all well-meaning people will be cautious in trying to um, be too excited to, as it is now, quote the real cost of COVID to Ghana. Um, when we should go to the lives lost, which are not something we can bring back. Um, I think this, this begs the question, as the President has said, uh, in a very resounding way and and you know tell me if i'm wrong when either of us our relatives are on a sick bed we will put in all our dollars to bring their life to you know an appreciable uh you know level and i think that the president and the economic management team were in that situation when ghana was on, on our knees in terms of the covid uh you know ravaging uh, effect so i i would sit here on this big issue program and posit that the real adverse impact of COVID uh, is yet to be really fully uh, 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 no, no, noticed. And nobody, nobody in the world, as it stands, can today, as we're still in the pandemic, uh, come out and say that the 20, I think it's, I think worldwide, the vice president quoted 12 billion uh, in terms of what has been used but he didn't quote the real impact assessment. And, and I beg because of my background in insurance prior to medicine that uh, when there's a car accident, the assessment 
the impact, you know, it takes time to, to really bring that out. So COVID, which has cost us many lives, many businesses, many flights canceled, uh, we, we cannot until 10 years from now come to terms with the real impact. So that is another key point. Now, uh, the banking sector, uh, let me be on the side of the depositors. And that is where I will always stand. Um, I hate to say that um, I'm, I'm of the school of thought that the depositors are always more important than the employers, or in that case, the bank. All of us should fight for the rights of depositors, not the bankers. And, and I will say this anywhere you put me, because when you have your hard-earned money put into a bank, you have every right to have access to it when you need it. And the bank, in as much as they utilize it, have to do it judiciously. I've always asked this key question from an investment standpoint. The traditional banks in this country, before they open a branch, take several years and several measures to make sure that the new branch opening would be viable, will be cost effective, will be appropriate for the depositors that they are taking their money or they are using their money for that. However, I saw many branches of new banks open, uh, you know, all over. And I, I, I beg that, that I always looked at GN Bank, for instance, and I said, wow, which bank puts a, a branch like within every 100 meters? It doesn't make economic sense. It was poor judgment on the bank's part to, as it is, open branches like, excuse me to say, Wache joints, you know, in this country. And that was serious from a financial standpoint. And I really think that we ought to preserve depositors' rights. And, and that is what the government did. Uh, in, and, and in that sense, it is unfortunate that we will assume that it takes five, uh, you know, uh, million to... Uh, save something that we use 25 million. Now, let me be very uh, straightforward that that is not the, the case uh, in terms of the amount needed to save the banks. And, and the 25 million was also not necessarily just for the existing banks that were closed, but to actually cushion the entire banking sector, even for those that were still banking. You understand? So, so let's be uh, more clear in that regard that the 25 uh, that was used was not strictly for just what was on the books of those those banks that were closed down, but to to cushion the entire banking sector. And and it is very important that we always fight for the depositors. Listen, <laughs> yes, we ought to worry about the job losses, but more importantly, the job losses are still linked to people's money hard-end money that they put in the, in the hands of bankers. And, and I, I, I worry that we always just talk about just, just the job losses. You know, people committed suicide for loss of their hard-end money when the likes of Enron went down south. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't take it lightly when people, uh, you know, put their hard-end money in any bank and, and, and uh, is misused. So that, that is one other uh, thing I, I really need to call uh, uh, Suhini's attention to. So in, in, in summary, uh, one key thing is that, one, uh, the vice president has done a good job. I, I really think that the admission 
that Ghanaians are, are struggling in the country was was from from his heart, and 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 I, I think that he's done well to admit that times really are hard. He didn't come saying a whole different thing. Uh, now, in addition, I think that there are so many uh, projects that he listed, over a hundred, and and I really think that uh, Ghanaians will benefit more if we spend more time educating Ghanaians about all of these individual projects, which are tangible, which we can feel uh, with our hands and see with our eyes, and possibly uh, see Ghanaians who are working on all of these fantastic projects. And, and it begs the question, uh, these 100 plus projects begs the question when we all say that we don't see where the loans have gone to. And I really have, you know, a problem with especially parliamentarians who would come and say that the loans we approve in parliament for government use, we don't know where the, the, the loans go to. This year, for instance, a loan agreement for a bridge, uh, you know, around, uh, I think, the Kuhu Enclave, mm -hmm. uh, from Plains. I mean, we, we all signed. We all agreed to it. So if six months down the line, we come back and make a statement that the loans, we don't know where they are going. I, I really worry about it. As we sit here, Suhini is aware that Kita Sea Defense is a huge deal. And we all wish and hope that we can source some funding for that. Should we stop? Is it not necessary? These are the challenges that government has. And, and this is why we end up doing the Oliver Twist thing of always going for more. Now, with the E-Levy, uh, I, I love what Kujo Pongkuma said in the sense that it has been exhaustive in terms of the many town halls, the many debates on, on the parliamentary floor. And, and as you well know, when the majority leader was supposed to even comment, he said that, you know what, we've said everything we can about E-Levy. And he gave the speaker the opportunity to put the question. So I really think that uh, well-meaning Ghanaians on behalf of the government should maybe... Uh, as it is, fortunately, we have you know social media outlets. They can replay all of these town hall uh, things and see the length of breath in terms of all the in-depth things of the E-Levy. And let me add one key thing. The one reason why I commend the opposition party is that they've driven more transparency and accountability into the E-Levy. And they need to commend themselves for the fact that because of them and their push, finance minister, at least agreed to put the money into the consolidated fund and also upped the Ghana Revenue Authority's role in collecting the revenue. And these are positives. The bill that was presented in November changed by the time we were passing it. And these are the real positives that I think that they should pat themselves on the back for. That if not for, you know, their bravado as opposition uh, uh, party, and, and, and their push for change. You know, the 1.75, uh, uh, se yeah, 75 would have been there. At least it came down to 1.5, which from percentage standpoint is a huge deal. 1.75 of a billion and 1.5 of a billion, huge, huge. So I, I really think that there are some pluses that the opposition party should at least afford themselves those things and be happy about it. And, and I really think that uh, I've said countless times, the initial bill, we didn't have consolidated fund. 
the current bill, everything goes into the consolidated fund. And these are pluses of the e-levy. And also, the, the fact that when you're paying on governmental platforms, you know, the charges have been cancelled. And these are positives. And, okay. and I think that they should speak the truth to the Ghanaian people. And, and in conclusion, uh, you know, half-truths are not truths. And, and we can't base our facts on several months back when we have current facts. And, and that would make it seem that the vice president was, you know, pilfering lies. But that is not the case. And, and I really think that let's be truthful with Ghanaians. Let's not take things out of perspective. And, and COVID is not the least, and I repeat that, COVID is not the least point well of made. our concerns. Point, Thank you very much. Point well made, Dr. Dixon, Adumakukisi, Member of Parliament, for Anya Soutuma. Take another break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the big issue. We enter the second phase of the conversation where we enter parliament, where three members of parliament have been referred to the Privileges Committee of Absenteeism. So we have Sarah Joasafo, MP for Don Kwabinya. I think that had long been coming. Uh, Henry Korte, the Greater Courage Law Minister, Member of Parliament for Ayawasu Central, and Kennedy Ejapon, Member of Parliament for Asin Central. Now, the speaker said per search conducted on attendance to parliament by MPs in the current meeting, the votes and proceedings of Parliament reveal that those MPs have absented themselves more than 15 sitting days. Uh, per the referral, the Privileges Committee is to consider the actions that need to be taken against the absentee MPs and report to the House two weeks after the House resumes from adjournment. Now, let me just even begin this conversation from uh, Dr. Rashid Dramani, Executive Director, African Center for Parliamentary Affairs. Why are so many of our parliamentarians absence from Parliament? Um, well, at, at, um, let me begin by saying that, as many have said uh, in the last couple of weeks, this is not peculiar to our country. Uh, in many countries, we have situations where members of Parliament are not even full-time um, employees, if you like, of the, of the state, because of the fact that you know, there's a recognition that uh, they might spend their time doing uh, other things. In our country, however, um, members of parliament are full-time employees of us, the citizens, and they have to show up and, and do their work every day that, uh, that parliament is in session. Um, the reasons, I believe, are many and, and varied. Uh, but for me, watching Parliament uh, since the second Parliament up to this point, I think um, we have a lot of absenteeism in the House because over the years, Speaker after Speaker, Parliament after Parliament, we've not been able to crack the whip and make sure that uh, those who fall foul, I mean, the standing orders are clear, uh, Order 16.1 and the Constitution is also very clear. Uh, but you know, we've seen your cameras go into the house and show us most of the time uh, empty spaces. Um, looking at that, I mean, for me, I always begin to wonder whether we 
don't want as a country to perhaps look at what what others do like if you go to the uk parliament i mean it's not it's not obligatory for a member of parliament to attend to the sitting of the house i mean eskimi the authority on on parliamentary proceedings makes uh, that that clear in in his book i mean it's up to the parties to enforce uh, attendance and so on particularly on very important yeah. occasions uh, in our country We've decided to go the other way and say that uh, members have to be there. And if you absent yourself 15 uh, consecutive times, then you have automatically vacated your seat. That's what the Constitution says. I mean, the standing order says, mm -hmm. I mean, it has to be referred to the Privileges Committee. Yeah. And that's where mm -hmm. I think the legal issues, yeah. I mean, begin to, to come up. So, Godfrey, I think these are my uh, I mean, preliminary remarks on, on this matter. So, Ini, you are in Parliament, and uh, a lot of people are not happy with you. And by really? that, I mean the General House of Parliament. It's not just uh, the three aforementioned parliamentarians who have been referred. Ah. Yes, big conversation. But a lot of people feel for people whose jobs are full-time representatives of people. Mm. A lot of you seem to find a lot of good reason not to be at your jobs. Um, well... I think that is that is a broader discussion uh, that we can have. I, I am know, interested in having on on, <laughs> on another platform. Um, the issue of members of parliament being absent uh, from the house is not a straightforward, you know, uh, matter. And because of that, uh, parliament itself has over the years um, come up with ways of determining the presence or uh, absence of a member uh, using various procedures. When I went to parliament, for example, in the seventh parliament, um, the procedure was that you go to the mail's room where are pigeonholes are when you arrive uh, to sign the attendance book to show that you are present. And that was enough to uh, sh indicate your presence. You didn't have to be in the chamber. Mm -hmm. And people could sign and either go to their offices or go for a committee meeting. Sometimes the committee meetings can be held within the presence of parliament or outside mm -hmm. parliament. Mm -hmm. You have invitations to uh, other programs. Dr. Rashid Ramani and others when they organize programs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, depending on the topic, they invite parliamentarians. You can go to parliament, write your name, and still go for such a program, which is still in line with your parliamentary uh, duties. Uh, in this eighth parliament, the attendance book is now put at the entrance of the chamber block. An actual, is it an actual book? Well, it's a sheet of paper that they print names of members in every day. Oh, so in so And then you sign, yes. And then you sign for the table office to capture whether you are present or not. And so you have it at the entrance. And they have two copies, one at the entrance of the minority side and one at the entrance of the majority side. So well, once you come in, the, the, and this is because of the debate over mm. presence and absence. Mm -hmm. So the male's room was not considered part of the chamber. <laughs> and so you now have to bring the thing to the chamber block. That's where you now... So, I mean, that's why I say it's not a straightforward oh, matter. Yeah. It's not a straightforward matter you can settle. That's why I said on another platform we can discuss that. Because the topic for today is with the three members who have been yes. determined by the record to have absented themselves for more than But the problem days. has to do, and would you just, is the records. Yeah. Because we have 
significant disputes yeah. most of the time in Parliament yeah. over the records. Yeah. So for me, uh, that is why I will be surprised if people are not happy with us. Because what is currently happening now, it's, it's, it should engender a certain level of excitement mm -hmm. really? that things are going to perhaps finally be settled once and for all. I mean, when these members appear before the committee, mm -hmm. they, will, they have the right to appear with their lawyers. You know, and they will argue their, their reasons out. Even mm -hmm. if, I mean, either for the records or against the record, they, they, it will lead to some transformation. It will lead okay. to some, so? some, some, yes, I believe it will lead to some transformation okay. of the way we do business in the house. And that yeah. has been lacking in the past. I mean, we have talked about these things, but we have never really taken a step that will lead to some transformation, some, you know, definitive directives, uh, directives and recommendations right. that will lead to transformation. So I think that on this particular matter, we are about to really get the full benefits of the hung parliament that we have mm -hmm. with this particular matter. Because what is already happening, uh, Dr. Rashid was just saying of a, about a seeming division, even on, on both sides of the, of the divide. Mm -hmm which is how parliament should be. Yeah. I mean, there should be that f freedom to disagree with even members that you caucus with mm. or people that you belong to the same party with. And for me, what is happening with this three, you know, people referred to the uh, uh, Privileges Committee is bringing that about. For example, on the day that the speaker you know, um, um, gave those directives. Mm. You had the minority, I mean, the minority chief whip, mm -hmm. raise a procedural issue. That was separate from whether or not he agrees with their referral to the committee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That is separate. Yeah, very but serious. people have misinterpreted yeah. it to mean yeah. that the minority chief whip was defending the, uh, the, 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 the people and did not want them referred to the Privileges Committee. Far from that. I mean, yes, subsequently he made comments that seemed like he was uh, uh, making excuses for Ajua Safo's absence and all of that. But the substantive issue yeah. that he raised was a procedural one. Yeah. The fact that when you look at our standing orders, I have a You're copy right, here. Yeah. Yes, when you look at our standing orders, there's a procedure for presenting petitions and papers mm -hmm. okay. before Parliament. Yeah. Now, it's, it talks about the fact that a member of parliament or anybody who is presenting a petition sh will do so through a member of parliament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the member of parliament presents the paper or the petition before mm -hmm. the house. The speaker directs for it to be taken to the table mm -hmm. and then debates or, you know, conversations are had on it. Yeah. And then the speaker can now make a recommendation as to what to be done yeah. with the petition. Yeah. So Muntake's point was that Nowhere in our standing orders does it give the speaker the right mm. to receive a petition and present the petition before the House to debate or to discuss. Yeah. And that the speaker was wrong. Mm. That was his, his contention. Yeah, and that's how we've always understood and, and that And that is how the, the, the procedure has always been. Mm. But then listen to the speaker. If you look at our order of business too, you have first prayer, you have a message from the president if there's any, mm -hmm. then you have a message from the speaker if there's any, mm -hmm. before you now do votes and proceedings. That's mm -hmm. like going through the minutes of the previous day sitting. Mm -hmm. So the speaker says, yes, I respect the standing orders. 
But on this matter, I have been personally petitioned as speaker, and it's true, many have invited him to even declare the seats vacant. Mm -hmm. And so I am using my address in the business that we have to, 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 to respond to the invitations that have been sent to me, either by way of petition or by way of interviews, to pronounce on this matter. And you cannot fault the speaker too so much. I mean, because he's also acting within the standing orders. The, that's his message. And he said, it is my recommendation to the House. I mean, that's what he said. He said, it is my recommendation to the House, based on the petitions, personal petitions I have received, based on the invitations in the media and other people on this matter. This is my address to the House, and this is my recommendation that these people be referred to the Privileges Committee. That's how he explains his position. Now, I don't know. In my view now, I don't know if Muntaka is right or the Speaker is yeah, right. But, but I'm saying they are both making sense. Mm. No, but when he said recommendation, did you... Uh, vote to accept that it should be referred. Ah, so it was not, that wasn't it. But yeah. I'm saying that at least, so that is why Muntaka has filed a substantive motion mm -hmm. to challenge yeah. the referrer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying this is how our parliament yeah. should be. Yeah. We must take advantage of these numbers that we have today yeah. to make decisions that will stand the test of future parliaments mm -hmm. and the composition that will come out of it. Because I have said, and, and let me wrap up perhaps on mm -hmm. that, that look, the opportunity we have now, we may not have again. We have seen the abuse of the executive having majority in parliament. What we are likely to see in future is the minority having more numbers. The party out of government having more numbers, which we can always imagine will also be abused by those out of government, frustrating government. But currently what we have is an... It's a balance. Okay. And so once we, we engage constructively with open-mindedness, we can agree on things that will check abuses of executive having majority or executive having minority in parliament okay. when that situation arises. So that was the first uh, issue that uh, Muntaka raised, the procedural uh, issue. Now, there was a second issue. Uh, let me wrap up on yes, it because on. I, I, I had to even contribute to that on the floor. The second issue had to do with what happens when these people appear before the Privileges, Privileges Committee. Committee. Mm -hmm. Does the Privileges Committee have the final say mm -hmm. on the fate mm -hmm. of these people? The majority mm -hmm. leader mm -hmm. is arguing that the Privileges Committee, once mm -hmm. they determine that these people were guilty, they vacate mm -hmm. their seats. There's yeah. a certain automaticity, he argues, mm -hmm. to you know the provisions of 97 you know, uh, C. Mm -hmm. He argues that way. Mm -hmm. Mr. Honorable Ambrose Derry agrees with him. I disagree. Yes. And I, I got the opportunity from Mr. Speaker to make yeah. the point that, look, mm -hmm. if you look at uh, our standing orders, mm -hmm. 164, mm -hmm. yeah. it clearly talks about the Privileges Committee of Parliament. Yeah. And it says, there shall be a committee of privileges which shall consist of the first deputy speaker as chairman and not more than 30 other members. Mm -hmm. And two talks about how it conducts its business. Mm -hmm. It says, it shall be the duty of the committee by order of the house. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the committee works at the behest of the house to inquire into any complaint of contempt of parliament or breach of privilege or any matter of privilege which may be referred to it and to recommend to the house such action as the committee may consider appropriate. Yeah. So the committee can
take any action, yeah. but they recommend to the house, and yeah. the lawyers are here. Mm. Recommendation is not a legal; it's not legally binding. Yeah. <laughs> it's but, not legally but, but binding. See, so the house can either approve their recommendation or reject it. Excellent. But you see, I mean, the danger in in all this, I mean, the lack of clarity, the yeah. position of the majority leader, the yeah. I mean, the what the uh, standing orders oh, are saying. Uh, the procedural issue that uh, the minority okay. chief whip has raised and yeah. so on. If we are not careful, um, we don't want to end up at the Supreme Court again. Somebody <laughs> saying, let the court come and get involved in the work of parliament and interpret these mm -hmm. rules for us. Mm -hmm. So what does this suggest to me? I think it tells me that, I mean, the orders, I mean, there are still a lot of areas where we okay. don't have clarity. Yes. Exactly. Okay. And we, mm. we, we might as well take advantage of the current, um, I mean, current I mean, uh, portrait of our parliament mm -hmm. and then the processes because the revision of the standing orders are still outstanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still haven't, uh, this is still dated 2000. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still haven't uh, finished the revision of the, the news, I mean, the, yeah. the, this one, mm -hmm. to have new standing orders. Mm -hmm. And I think all these matters might be matters that uh, should uh, engage the, the attention mm -hmm. of the leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What do you make of this scenario? Yeah, so I basically, uh, Sweeney has said it all. I agree two main points with him. One, as he stated, my understanding is that in order for the petition to go through, they have to go through a member of parliament. You see, that's order 76, the first yeah. one that he was yeah. referring to. You have to go through a member of parliament. You can't send a petition directly uh, to the speaker. Well, you can send maybe something that you can personally attend to. But if you are talking about parliament as an entity to deal with it, my understanding from 76 usually is that you go through. Even though we are others so now say that uh, 76 says, uh, apart from matters dealing with privilege, right? Let's go mm. to 76. A petition not relating to a breach of the privilege. Yes, but that notwithstanding, it's still not clear that mm. you bring any matter like that. So the first thing is that the, uh, so the first question, the fundamental question to answer is that when a member absents himself, okay, from parliament, do we all agree straight away that it is a breach of privilege? Mm -hmm. The, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the first thing we have to That's the fundamental that's thing. Yeah. You see, so the way 76 is couched, even though, so let's see, uh, say every application to parliament shall be, that's you see, every application to parliament shall be in the form of a petition. And every petition must be presented by a member who mm -hmm. shall be responsible for the observance of the rules, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay? Yes. Um, in one second, let's look at the two. And presenter, a member shall confine. Okay, all petitions shall go that way. Yes. No um, motion. Um, so there is a thing about it shall not relate to privilege. If mm -hmm. a motion. Okay, let me continue with the uh, present. Uh, this and the point as I go. Yeah. So as I said, because the uh, procedure that every petition should go through a member of parliament is well entrenched and well understood, it, it sounds a bit odd that. Uh, Mr. Speaker says the petition him, and then he took it on, and then boom, Mr. Speaker uh, uh, refers it to the uh, what do you call it, the, the privileges committee. So I think that it's good that Mutaka has filed the motion. They should take time and go through it. Of course, if you want to do the right thing, I mean, follow due process. So what I see is that you want to keep absenteeism, but why the rush? 
why the right so that the people are and you know there are several uh, times that people have sent petitions to parliament and they were turned back that no you can't bring it i think even last year there yeah. was this union big yeah. union that yeah. demonstrated one of the subgroups a very yeah. big union in ghana if we google we'll get it they went there and we told that no 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 parliament this is not how we do business you can't bring the petition yourself you have to go get a member either your member of parliament or any other parliamentarian you can lobby he takes the petition and then he brings it in. So this is the, uh, as far as I can remember, this is the first time that for such a serious business, mm -hmm. Mr. Speaker Sumutu mm -hmm. is uh, routing this uh, in this procedure. So they should debate it again. You know, we are all learning. And then if there is room, sure. And of course, those who are affected, if upon reading, they don't agree, of course, they know what to do. Because th this area, you know, will soon come to the Asari versus uh, Attorney General, that, that thing. But that doesn't quite uh, answer this one. And even let's accept that in a democracy such as ours, one court of appeal decision cannot settle all the issues. You see, in that particular case, the Asari versus uh, uh, Attorney General and the others, you would see that that one, the matter was referred even to the Privileges Committee. Then they came out with they recommend, they, uh, I mean, they, they, their decision was that, yes, they should, the parliamentarians should be allowed. I'm watching, should be given an indefinite leave of absence, you see, and it was agreed. Then uh, Asari went to court. Of course, before the court came to a decision, they saw that, no, the indefinite thing was wrong. So the by-election, the seat was declared vacant, and the by-election held. So at the time the court was even deciding, the matter, the, I mean, the by-election had been held on, on, and all that. But the court determined that, look, this thing can recur in future. So let's state what the law is. So me, my point is that the beginning, that fundamental, you see in law, there's this common thing all lawyers will tell you that you can't put something on nothing. It will collapse. So the key thing is that how did the petition get to the Privileges Committee? Can you, can Mr. Speaker alone, is that, is that part of his functions? When you look at the things that Mr. Speaker has, is that part of them, that he can receive petitions and then route the petition straight, I'm not aware. Mm. Yes, that's the fundamental thing. Mm. So always remember the key thing. So like in law, others will say capacity. Has, the, has Mr. Speaker got capacity to route the uh, petition to the Privileges Committee? If you can't, no, no, they will not even go into the matter. Every day we go to court, hey, you find that matter, they raise capacity, it's like they're meeting you at the door. Justify whether you can enter. If you can't, no matter how sweet your case is, once you are not the right person, you don't have the right authorization. No, 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 no. They will not go. They've not dealt with the matter. It's just preliminary that you don't have the right capacity. So you go, go and include yourself the capacity and come. Yes. Okay, interesting. Maybe, you know, maybe. interesting, Godfrey. Yes. You know, uh, I think this is what uh, mm -hmm. Lloyd Pebble was looking for. Mm -hmm. A petition not relating to a breach of the privileges of the House, mm -hmm. and which according to the rules or usual practice of the House can be received shall be brought to the table by the direction of Mr. Speaker. Mm -hmm. So here again is the direction of the Mr. Speaker, but who brings it is clear. I mean, a member or, you know, someone signed it. But the interesting part is order five and six. Yes. You were yes, order... talking about putting something or nothing. Mm -hmm. Order five and, and six makes our standing order sometimes yeah. you know, look irrelevant. It says, in case mm. of doubt, mm. these orders shall be interpreted by Mr. Speaker as he deems fit. Yes. 
but the thing is that so clearly, <laughs> yes, no, no, so, but in law, when the thing is very clear that petition should go through members, yeah. hey, it's not likely to be done that speaker can set everything aside yeah. and just do anything. That's that's let me talk to argument. a former member of parliament mm -hmm. who is also a lawyer, Alexander okay. Alban, is a former member of parliament okay. uh, for the Gomwa West area. Mr. Okay. Alban, morning. Please unmute your microphone for me. Good morning, my brother. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I, I, I see you are comfortably seated in the back of your car. A neighbor. It's good to be out of parliament. Yeah. He, he's been enjoying himself. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I guess I need to ask this. Mm -hmm. uh, my other panelists have gone through what the standing orders do. And I get this feeling that for this to go through, we, we might need some clarity first on the standing orders and then two on perhaps considering, should we consider uh, amendments that tie down parliamentarians and separate rules clearly so that, so far as we are concerned, if you are an MP, show up and do the work? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, greetings to my friends there, mm -hmm. and for you especially, uh, <laughs> Happy New Year, because mm -hmm. we have not met this year. Certainly we That's have not. Truth. Yes. Um, now, I think that the conversation started with absenteeism in Parliament. Try as many MPs do to be in Parliament, sometimes the need to even protect your state is itself a reason why you may have to go to the constituency to attend one program or the other over your attendance in parliament. We should not run away from that. Week in, week out, there are a lot of programs, invitations on the MP. And I can assure you that if you decide not to go and you get so consumed by the work in Parliament, the next time you will see your exit. And uh, I think here I will cite myself as an example. Uh, every now and then we'll be going to constitutional legal and parliamentary affairs uh, uh, committee meetings. We'll be at Kofodia, we'll be here trying to look into some law and all that. And you get so consumed by it and you feel so good you are helping uh, in the fashioning out of laws. Then people in your constituency will be saying that, oh, <laughs> and so they get angry. And if you are so sensitive to that and you want to keep your seat, I can assure you that you may want to sacrifice parliamentary work to go and fraternize with your people. Then they see that, yes, you are with us. I think the time has come for us to even tell our people that, you know what? When we come before you to seek your mandate, to go to parliament and do some work, you know, allow us some space to do that work. It is one of the uh, reasons why we are always either very late in going to parliament or... All those who were actively on that committee lost their seats. Well, I think we, 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 we have a bit of a problem. But, um, Sweeney, I, I hear the point that he's trying to make yeah. with regards to yeah. the complexity of your role. 
But the rules are clear. If you do need to go and visit your people, write and seek permission. Is that not what it is? Yeah, that's what it says. That's, that's what the procedure is. But sometimes... Why uh, do you just leave without telling the parliament you've left? Governor, sometimes you are, you are even in the chamber and an emergency requires you to be in the constituency. And you are on your way before you remember that mm -hmm. you need to put in a request for, uh, you know, uh, uh, leave. But somehow, but not for fifteen sitting days. Not for fifteen sitting days, yeah. obviously. But I think that is why uh, uh, ninety-seven Article ninety-seven uh, C one mm -hmm. C gives the, the 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 chance to a member to appear before a committee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is at the committee that when your reasons for absenting yourself mm -hmm. are not deemed, you know, relevant that you can then be uh, 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 asked to vacate your seat or recommended for your seat to be uh, uh, declared vacant. Because we, I believe the framers of the Constitution and the Standing Orders uh, talked about situations or scenarios where you can find yourself in a place that will make it impossible for you to meet the requirement of asking for permission. For example, when COVID hit. It didn't happen. But assuming that a member of parliament was caught abroad at the time that we shut our borders. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in that case, you can be absent for as long as the borders are closed. But if you don't rely on maybe virtual means of seeking, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, permission. Uh, permission. Mm -hmm. And we are told the permission, the speaker himself does not have a mandate to grant you permission beyond 14 days. Mm -hmm. The speaker can't even grant you permission beyond 14 days. So even if you do it virtually, mm -hmm. but by the circumstances of airports being shut down, mm -hmm. you have to stay away for more than 14 days. What happens? Well, you will I have to appear before a committee and be, explain. There will be exceptions in force majeure situations. Right, exactly. exactly. So yeah. that's why, that's why mm -hmm. the, that, oh, that opportunity is there for one to appear yeah. before a committee. Yes. Okay, hold on. I think so I have, appearing I before Alex a committee back. in itself yes. mm -hmm. is not automatic that mm -hmm. yes. you, your seat is, is declared vacant. Perfect. And you see... The determination of your reasons mm -hmm. can be can be can can be varied mm -hmm. depending on who is receiving your mm -hmm. explanation. Okay, so on, when on, you have on. the committee taking a decision, it's important that the house, you know, accepts that decision or rejects it. So because hold on for me. That have, is a collection and representation of Ghanaians. Mr. Mm -hmm. Please me. Mr. Aban. They have to unmute. Mr. Aban. Well, I think I still think we have a, a problem with. Mr. I can Aban. hear you. Yes, okay, good. You're making a point. Please go ahead. I cannot hear you from here. Oh. You may have to unmute from your end. I can hear you. All right. We'll try and fix uh, that connection to Mr. Aban. But let me go to Franklin. Could you? Franklin. Hello. Yeah, Franklin. Hello, this is Aban here. All right. Arabal Aban, let's hear you. Good. So I was talking about the causes of absenteeism in Parliament. Yes. And then, uh, having said that, the next issue is about uh, the speaker's referral to uh, of these gentlemen, of these three MPs to the Privileges Committee, whether uh, it is procedurally right or mm. whether it is wrong. Um, the question that begs for answer is, do we have to always wait for a petition 
to be filed. Because if you look at the uh, procedure, the procedure as stated in the standing order, P or her MP to file a petition, or the person will have to file the petition through the MP to Parliament. In a sensitive issue like this, I'm just wondering who among the MPs who exercise that boldness to say that these three MPs or this Mr. XYZ have been absenting themselves from uh, Parliament. And so their conduct should be referred to the Privileges Committee for them to go and give justification or otherwise for their absence. I'm thinking that this is a matter of fact. It's a matter of fact. And that, looking at what Muntaka said, yes, maybe all other issues concerning uh, the welfare of people out there and all that may come through petition that way. But what about a matter of fact of this nature where the speaker may take parliamentary notice, if that is, if that is acceptable, because we have judicial notice, whether he can also take parliamentary notice of uh, the absence of these people, and because of that, he, Suomotu, can say that, look, let us curb absenteeism, because it has been one of the many complaints in our democracy. So let me, on my own motion, refer the matter to the Privileges Committee for their discussion and reports. Would that be out of place? Like Strini said, it appears to me that looking at the letter of the um, of the provision in the standing orders, Muntaka is right in saying that look, every petition that comes must come through somebody and it must be voiced out by a parliamentarian on the floor of the house. So that there's that kind of discussion on it, based upon which the speaker would then refer the matter to uh, the Privileges Committee. But I'm asking, should this be treated differently? The sensitivity of it, could it also not be right for the speaker to take notice, parliamentary notice of it, and say that, look, let me refer this matter to the uh, Privileges Committee, whether or not he had even received a petition. That's the question I'm just posing without necessarily giving an answer. But I'm thinking <laughs> okay. that, yes, but I'm thinking because these are two possible ways of going about it. But I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm thinking that if we want to interpret our constitution in a manner which would actually work along with us in uh, modern times, as was stated in the Tufovers Attorney General case, that it's a living organism then we must interpret it in such a way that it will sit well with the sensibilities and expectations of our people. Because this is something we have been complaining about. And if somebody should even exercise the boldness to, to petition, he goes to his MP and his MP says that, oh, the person you are complete, complaining about or petitioning about is my friend. I can't go and make that case on the floor of the house. Should that petition die? That's the question. And so, I think that it is not out of place for the speaker to uh, refer this matter, especially when uh, it would not 
create issues of people saying that, okay, it was this man who brought me, uh, it was this MP who brought my matter up, and finally they went through the uh, books. Uh, I went to the Privileges Committee and I've lost my seat. I believe that this should be treated differently from all other kinds of petitions. And so, to me, I don't think the Speaker's uh, position is completely out of place. Mm, thank you, Mr. Aban, mm. uh, for your thoughts on this. Mr. Ramani, you have to make a point. Yes, uh, I think that I want to ride on, on his last point. I mean, referring to the fact that, you know, it's going to be very difficult to get a member of parliament, I mean, uh, shepherding mm -hmm. such a petition. For me, that raises the next question, which is, uh, particularly in this current situation in which we find ourselves, I mean, where there's a game of balance of power, balance of numbers, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if um, any member, particularly from the, the majority side on the committee, mm -hmm. would have the guts to vote, you know, in favor of removing three of their members, which automatically makes Honorable Suini's side a majority in Parliament. Mm -hmm. This, I mean, we can't but imagine. But should it not be a matter of the, of, and, and I just want to ask, Suini, so you are in Parliament. Yes. So mm -hmm. the reference is you have been absent for 15 yes. days yeah. without permission. Explain yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Your explanation has to make sense to the members mm -hmm. in that regard. Mm -hmm. So basically, it comes down to a matter of a uh, certain level of subjectivity. Exactly. exactly. I see, like, 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 like Muntaka raised an issue that people considered a defense mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. Ajwa Safo. He raised the issue of uh, her children. Her children. Mm -hmm. and, and how possibly uh, her absence mm -hmm. is to protect, mm -hmm. you know, a situation where she might lose custody of her children. Yeah. Yeah. Is, she that, as MP? is that reasonable before the committee? Yeah, exactly. I mean, is, is, that yeah. is that not reasonable? No, but they will have to say representation. representation. I'm yeah, talking about exactly. the activity you are talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, many of the people Family remember who will be on the committee may yeah. be parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, how are they going to relate exactly. to this, mm. you know, excuse when it and is presented in this particular to them? So I'm saying that, I'm saying that it is, it, for me, what is happening is interesting. Mm -hmm. Let us use the opportunity yeah. to uh, uh, get to a conclusion mm -hmm. that can take care of scenarios that we have not even but, but contemplated see, yet. Is that precedent for this, though? It's, no, it's, I don't, I don't I think mean, any they're, member they're, has been referred to the committee. Well, I mean, yes, I mean, we've not, we've not had this I mean, situation. And if it's happening even now in this eighth parliament with the tight numbers, I just cannot imagine how we are going to get out of this. I mean, uh, legally, yes, maybe people might have been, I mean, uh, of breach of the law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But politically, I mean, I cannot see how any party will commit suicide in, in this, uh, but you see, in this particular Dr. matter. Dr. we have not even gotten to a point mm -hmm. of determining if there has been a breach or not. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you see, the breach is determined... By the... By the Committee. By the committee. Yes. Mm -hmm. So for now, what mm -hmm. we know is mm -hmm. that they have absented themselves mm -hmm. for more than yeah. 15 days. Yeah. Without but that permission. In itself, without mm -hmm. permission. But that in itself mm -hmm. does not constitute a breach mm -hmm. until the reasons for their absence is determined well, not I to mean, be reasonable. If we say, if we say the constitution, but one C. I mean, without reasonable cause. So it is a committee with together with Parliament that will determine the reasonability. And if that will subject to the vote. But, but, hold, hold on, let me mm -hmm. just ask a question. You can then mm -hmm. come back. It, doesn't that provide um, 
Nobody then actually gets punished in this situation. Yeah, exactly. No, oh, then, no hold on. Okay, I'm just saying, yeah. because for instance, Henry Cote is the greater courage now minister. Mm -hmm. He's and the greater courage yeah, now minister. Yes, yeah. and he's done a good job. People yeah, but I'm just saying, <laughs> so he's 15 days absent from parliament. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he's not in the country. As greater courage now minister, he's very visible. Mm -hmm. So if he's not visible, it means he's perhaps not in the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So how does he live without... Telling Parliament that as greater courage now, Minister, mm -hmm. I am absent. Uh, you see another person who is not in Parliament but is on radio every day. Mm -hmm. So how <laughs> are you not showing up in Parliament? Why not mentioning his name? Yeah, can I get your for a You don't show up in Parliament for fifteen days, but he's on every radio station. Yeah. So what? How there has to be a way where okay, the privileges of take point at this is a Come on, Godfrey, that's yeah. how come you see Dr. Dramani mentioned the fact that we are still reviewing the uh, standing mm -hmm. orders. Do you remember that at the election of uh, Mr. Speaker, no, the time Mr. Speaker had to make a, a determination who is majority, who is minority, yeah. Yeah. the issue of this. Uh, standing orders revision loomed large so it became clear that yeah. we all wish that the new standing order should come into effect the next day yeah. then as soon as we it was uh, resolved or let's say you took a decision people were not happy but after a week this thing went back to the uh, this thing back yeah. banner look so to be clear in a democracy like this let's make clear rules yeah. let's make clear yeah. rules otherwise we will give too much discretion to the speaker mm -hmm. and you end up with an authoritarian speaker mm -hmm. for me this matter the best is that, look, like doctor said, let's make it clear in the, uh, there's a revised uh, standing, standing order. Orders. But apart from that, Godfrey, there's this Act 300, the Parliament Act, okay, mm -hmm. which is still law on our statute books. It says that if the constituents are not happy, let's say, you know, it's a democracy, mm -hmm. the constituents voted for her or um, for them, I mean, all the three. If the constituents are not happy, they can they do call. their own petition. Yeah, and if call. majority yeah. of the electors, where is it, it's here, if they say so, they can bring a petition, but to go through the party. Yeah. Then number two, if the party itself is not happy, the party itself, then they can take internal disciplinary matters and remove the MP from the party. Then they can notify speaker that it's not yet, and the person is no longer a member of the party. And this is still law. And you know, this particular law at 300, you know, we asked Justice Crab to, uh, what do you call it, uh, clean up. And this is in there. Nobody is complaining. The last time I tried the challenge of it, it was shut down. They said, no, look, these laws, when Kraft finished cleaning up, he took them to parliament. And parliament approved. So they are good laws. So please, there are two provisions here. Either the, elect uh, the electorate themselves bring a petition through the party that, look, we don't wish this person to continue as our MP. Or the party itself, if you have granted. Uh, the electorate through the party. Yes, yes, that's why I say so. There is ten, why not the electorate directly members. to the speaker? Ah, well, so he says that through. He says, look, let me read a part of it so that we we'll look. Yeah, we yeah. say this is unconstitutional, yeah. but at least let's bring it up. We yeah. are broadening the yeah. debate yeah. so that people who are not happy with what is in parliament. Yeah. They should know that there's another thing. It says that a member shall cease to be a member if an event occurs whereby he becomes a person such as is mentioned in the table contained in section one or B. Uh -huh. The speaker receives, now let's go straight, D. Uh -huh. The speaker receives a notice signed by a majority of the registered electors in the electoral district in which such member was elected that he no longer enjoys the confidence and support of the electorate in that district. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And the provided so that, speaker. Yes, provided speaker. that in the case of a member who is a member of the party, the notice is received by the speaker through the general yeah. secretary okay. of the party. the party. So pass okay. it through the party. Yeah. And then E. But, but I'm just saying that, that my problem with mm -hmm. that particular clause is mm -hmm. the mention of the party. Because once the person is elected, Mm -hmm. In for a particular no, area, but the party sponsor the candidate. Yes, yes. and I the whole thing, not the big system. So the you're saying system. the electorate needs to go and find the person's party, mm -hmm. but the party might say, "Well, we feel differently," yeah. even though the electorate feels strongly about it. Now, mm -hmm. without the party budging, it means the electorate's voice will not be heard. Not necessarily. Excellent. You have a point to start with. That's the literalist view. Yes. If such a thing were to happen and the party were to say, "No, we disagree." Let the person go to court. That's how we develop our democracy. Let the courts look at it and decide. That's a long yeah, process. Yeah. 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 That's, 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 that's democracy. That's democracy. We should just be We're just going to allow MPs not to show up. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, Godfrey, you know, the Europeans, in the mm -hmm. practice of their democracy, I mean, they were ahead of us mm -hmm. I mean, uh, many, many years, and yeah. in some cases, centuries. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they were confronted yes. with many of these uh, situations. Mm -hmm. And at one point in a number of countries, yeah. they, were, they were confronted with two scenarios. Mm -hmm. You know, the right of constituents mm -hmm. to be represented in mm -hmm. parliament. Mm -hmm. And then the right of the house, yes. if you like, to bring discipline upon a member by going to the extent of removing him, and in that case, denying the constituents of representation. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? I mean, to cure this, if you look at, I mean, the history, and uh, in terms of how most European parliaments have dealt with it, they took a middle ground, a realistic ground, because most people argue that, look, just like what we are facing here, it's going to be very difficult Assuming all these matters are determined, and then the matter eventually lands before the Privileges Committee. It's going to be one that has a majority either of the MPP or the NDC. <laughs> and assuming in this case, the MPP members are the ones that are I mean, before the, the committee, mm -hmm. it's going to be very difficult to see how uh, the chairman and, and the members I mean, from his party are going to make a determination to say reduce our numbers and leave us in a in a minority and then another e levy comes and then we are mm -hmm. we are slotted mm -hmm. i mean it's not going to happen mm -hmm. so the europeans said look let's be realistic let's take the financial sanctions kind mm -hmm. of regime and that's mm -hmm. how they deal with absenteeism in in most european parliaments mm -hmm. from denmark i mean mm -hmm. to i mean down to uh, southern europe mm -hmm. they take the the middle ground of saying mm -hmm. look we punish people by maybe uh, giving them a financial sanction yes. if they absent themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how they deal with it. Yeah. And you they, lose your salary. Yes, you lose. Your, and the British even said, look, it's not compulsory for a member of parliament to be in the house. Okay. And I think that, look, I mean, if we have to be realistic, especially in the two-party kind of uh, system, system that we have in this country, maybe that might be the way to go. Uh, to say that the MP does not necessarily have to show up. No, I mean I'm talking about not not the necessarily not the not the, not the, the British. Part, yeah, yeah, the financial part. Okay. I mean that might be realistic yeah. than to say we want to. I mean get the privileges committee because we had uh, Honourable Aban mm -hmm. say if there's a petition, which member mm -hmm. assuming that somebody is petitioning another MP from the mm -hmm. NDC. And they say, we so want Honourable Suyini to mm -hmm. take up this petition mm -hmm. and, and present it to Parliament. Mm -hmm. 
realistically it's not it's going not to happen. happen. Okay. No, but you see, uh, but I think that I think that uh, the financial, uh, you know, mm. um, punish sanction yeah. is is it's it's worth considering. Mm. But what we currently also have, for me, it's not um, entirely bad, mm -hmm. especially given our numbers in parliament in this uh, current parliament. Mm. We can we, st we can still get something very useful mm -hmm. from the process that will become. Um, um, a convention mm -hmm. that we can go by. The problem I see is with the, you know, determination by, for example, the majority leader mm -hmm. to kill the matter at the committee stage. No, that one is because you can't. see, because the, the 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 majority will have a chairman who will have a casting vote. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine that if they were to vote on party lines. You are going to have because of the numbers that we are all trying to protect. Mm -hmm. You know, the the, the numbers be game. A big deal right now. Yes, it's a, a big, a big deal. deal. Because yeah. of the numbers game, you are going to have you know the the the, the majority side uh, in, in imploring on the chairman to use his casting vote in favor of you know either exonerating some and punishing mm -hmm. some, or you know punishing. <laughs> all of them, something or exonerating all of them. You are going to have some kind of uh, politics being played there. But where the committee is allowed to make a recommendation to the House, for example, even if it is by majority decision because the chairman voted mm -hmm. that this two should be exonerated, this one should be, you know, punished, it will open up the debate on the floor. Mm -hmm. And once the debate on the floor is this is dispassionate you will have cross voting mm -hmm. on the on the fate of the three mm -hmm. you will have cross voting on the fate of the three okay. once we open up the debate yeah. because that then people will, will 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 in the end say that it is not fair to exonerate some and leave some mm -hmm. we either punish all of them or we exonerate yeah. all of them. Mm -hmm. Or, yes, it makes sense that mm -hmm. this be exonerated, but this too should be punished. Mm -hmm. or this and the debate will lead to cross-voting. Good. And I then that cross-voting yeah. is what we have always, you know, wanted. Yeah, from yeah, our yeah, and then very, very, it will become yeah, very, a convention for us. Very quickly, I mean, there's another school of thought. I mean, looking at all these and uh, raising the question, should we leave the discipline of members of parliament in the hands of their their colleagues in the hands of a committee like the Privileges Committee, right. particularly a committee that over the years we've seen situations where matters are referred to it and citizens don't, I mean, get what, what they expect exactly. in terms of determination. Exactly. And the, the case of uh, Denmark comes mm -hmm. uh, to play here. In Denmark, the Public Accounts Committee has members, some members who are not members of parliament, mm -hmm. you know, because they say the matters of money, public okay. money, is very important okay. to leave only in the hands of the politician. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. should we be thinking about yeah. maybe some mm -hmm. panel of uh, mm -hmm. eminent Ghanaians yeah, dealing yeah. With, with such matters, or should mm -hmm. we continue to leave that to the Privileges Committee? And I think that those are all matters maybe that could be subject uh, mm -hmm. subjects the of, the, of the revision mm -hmm. of the, the right. standing order. Let me, let me I just think that's another useful, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, recommendation mm -hmm. to consider. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at 164, mm -hmm. on the workings of the Privileges uh, Committee, mm -hmm. it even makes uh, that yeah. recognition mm -hmm. of uh, members yes. who may be compromised. Mm -hmm. A member of the committee may disqualify himself from participating in any investigation of the conduct of a member, mm -hmm. officer, or employee of the House upon a declaration in writing that he cannot render an impartial... Yeah, 
an unbiased decision mm -hmm. in the case in which he seeks to disqualify himself. Mm -hmm. So even with this yeah. three yeah. appearing before the committee, mm -hmm. don't be surprised that some members of the committee mm -hmm. will See, take mm -hmm. up uh, the provision mm -hmm. under 164 mm -hmm. because maybe my relationship with Kennedy Ajapong or mm -hmm. Ajua Safo yeah. is such that I cannot be mm -hmm. impartial on this matter. Mm -hmm. So Interesting. I want to take a couple of messages aside. and then we wrap up. Right. Says, good morning. Offer the right honorable speaker should uh, temper justice with mercy by giving a strong warning to absentee parliamentarians, Suleiman Adamba mm -hmm. from Tamale, and then a couple more on the economy. Um, Dr. Baumia always tells uh, their failures as their success. We said we were shouting NAPCO, but now silent when they cannot pay uh, 699 Ghana uh, CDs. And then this is uh, Osunoba from Sanyarugu. We need government to focus on local production. How can Ghana import sugar, palm oil, rice, cooking oil, not talk about petrol and diesel when we have oil refinery after digitization let state-owned enterprises make profit well it's an interesting point considering we saw the soe reports mm -hmm. uh, this week and it don't make for pleasant reading um, good morning to you all the three mps refer to the privileges committee will turn up to nothing the committee will free them the law will not work. <laughs> this will affect the poor. That's why I think uh, yeah. Doc's recommendation of an independent body yeah. looking at disciplinary uh, action against members mm -hmm. of parliament mm -hmm. is worth And then the final one, uh, this one is on the economy, it says, please let the government know that uh, things are difficult. For example, a box of A4 paper was 110 Ghana cities last year in December. I'm now buying it for 230 Ghana cities in the first week of April, uh, where do they want us to go is the question he is asking. So a big thank you to you at home uh, for listening to us and Permit watching me us. to say a happy birthday to my good friend Ronnie. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Kwesi Nicole. Ronnie Nicole. This is not the state housing. <laughs> well, no. Unfortunately, uh, for some reasons, I don't know if I have his permission to say. He's no longer there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, we wish him well. He's, in, he's a dancer man guy. Yeah, he's your... He's your yeah, he's my next door neighbor. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm going to find out from Ronnie when I get home happy why he's no longer Ronnie. deputy CEO of yeah. the State Housing Corporation. Thank you, Dr. Rashid Dramani. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Martin Pibu, mm -hmm. and also Alexander Aban, former member of parliament. A mm -hmm. uh, big thank you as well to the member of parliament for Tamale North, mm -hmm. uh, the Honorable Alaji Alassane Saibu Suhini. Uh, my name is Gofra Kutobuafo. Have a good weekend. Okay.